Hello, Ghostbusters. This is Janine Melnick speaking. Yeah, the real one. Oh, sorry to hear your place is haunted, but the guys, they're out at the moment. Really? You want me to put you on hold? Well, okay. The hold music is Reitman for the Job, podcast with Ross May. Dr. Vankman says it's all we can afford. Yeah. Okay, I'll talk to you later when they're back. Bye. Thank you. Hope we can help you again. Coming for a one-class flight. Good morning, I'm Roger Grimsby. Today, the entire eastern seaboard is alive with talk of incidents of paranormal activity. Alleged ghost sightings and related supernatural occurrences have been reported across the entire tri-state area. Well, everybody has heard ghost stories around the campfire. Heck, my grandma used to spin yarns about a spectral locomotive that would rocket past the farm where she grew up. But now, as if some unforeseen authority... something strange in the neighborhood. Larry King. The phone-in topic today, ghosts and ghost busting. The controversy builds, more sightings are reported. Some maintain that these professional paranormal eliminators in New York are the cause of it all. headlines all across the country, the Ghostbusters are at it again. This time at the fashionable dance club, The Rose. The boys in gray slugged it out with a pretty pesky poltergeist, then stayed on to dance the night away with some of the lovely ladies who witnessed the disturbance. This is Casey Kasem. Now, on with the countdown. 24 hours a day, seven days a week. No job is too big. No fee is too big. Is it just the mist that doesn't have arms and legs? As they say in TV, I'm sure there's one big question on everybody's mind, and I imagine you are the man to answer that. How is Elvis, and have you seen him lately? You have a ghost of a freaky ghost, baby. You better call. Ghostbusters! We're back! Wait, isn't that a tagline for Ghostbusters 2? Oh well. Hi everyone, I'm Ross May, you're listening to Reitman for the Job, and we're covering the back half of the original Ghostbusters from 1984. Our question for the day comes from Mr. Kaholic. First name, Al. Al Kaholic asks, Have your kids seen the Ghostbusters movie now? Yes, they've seen the real Ghostbusters for a while now, and have been playing with my old toys but it was just this summer that my eldest watched the movie with me. He covered his ears and ran away a few times at the scary parts, but he did the kid thing where he still stayed in the room and watched. Also, he had the best question during the first half. Where's Winston? That's right, where's Winston indeed? And he liked it. We'll probably watch it again this Halloween, maybe with a Halloween episode of Real Ghostbusters. But let's not beat around the bush any longer. No news, just a montage after the Ghostbusters have caught Slimer, and we are at the 39-minute mark in the movie. 
What a fun song, but we all know that. I already detailed some facts about it a while back. It really just gets you energized in the middle, doesn't it? So it's appropriate Dana is doing exercises while the music plays. Roger Grimsby, what a fun name, but Roger Grimsby was a real New York news anchor working for years at WABC. The only inauthentic thing about him being on the TV here is that I believe he was always working evenings, so they're bending reality to have him report in the morning here. Hey, two years later, in 1986, ABC would fire him, and then he spent a few years at NBC. He passed away in 1995. Meanwhile, the next guy, a reporter on the street, is actually a New York actor. Christopher Wincoop. All his roles are New York productions. Sex in the City, Law and Order playing different characters. What he's saying is fun, that his grandma told ghost stories about a spectral train. It's a good reminder after seeing Slimer that even if you don't believe this movie, or in ghosts at all, you probably have a friend or a relative who believes in something supernatural. For all the movie's craziness, the Ghostbusters are usually, usually only fighting things that are a bit more out there from what a lot of folks tell stories about. But I think we all know who's the real star in that shot, that hairy guy checking himself out. I've never heard otherwise, so I assume he's just a passerby who makes a funny impression. If he was in any other scene, he'd ruin the shot, looking at the film crew, but here it works because it's just part of a news broadcast. Ghost fever grips New York, says USA Today, and uses a production photo from when they were filming their commercial. Oh hey, in the top right, Song of Shannon, her pulsating Let the Music Play is getting plenty of play. That doesn't accompany the photo of the woman there. Shannon here is referring to the mononymed Shannon, or Brenda Shannon Green. I wish they'd use a photo of her with that blurb, but I suppose they would have needed to get permission. Shannon's Let the Music Play reached number two on the Billboard Top 100, something Casey Kasem probably said on the radio back in the fall of 83. By the way, Shannon wasn't with Columbia's Arista Records, she was with Atlantic. That probably explains why there's no photo of her.
But there's even more to this USA Today paper. It says, Ghost Fever Grips New York. But have you ever tried reading the main article? I can't read all of it, and I don't know if it makes sense or not, but it's about the economy and leads with Jeffrey Foe. Jeff Foe is an economist, and in 1986 he would found the Economic Policy Institute. From what little I am able to read, this article really is about the economy, and they're naming a real economist in it. I tried googling the few sentence fragments I was able to read, but couldn't find anything online. I don't know how to reach the 80-plus-year-old Jeff Foe, but if anyone else can out there, tell him he's in this USA Today paper in the movie Ghostbusters. With an incorrect headline. Man, USA Today really tricked everyone. Here, people thought they were going to read about ghosts, but instead they got to learn about the economy. There's a shot of Ecto-1 turning a corner, and the image is flipped. You can tell because the logo is wrong. I mean, wrong for North American audiences, and the gear is on the wrong side. So yeah, they accidentally flipped the footage as it turns this corner. Ooh, but we have an even bigger blunder than that. An extra from the New York Post. Ghost cops bust Chinatown spook. If by that you mean Gozer, because they use a photo of the guys crossing the streams at the end of the movie. What a shame. Sorry, I'm ruining the movie for everyone now. But speaking of the headline, Peter and Ray head back to the car, and the man brings them a couple of cooked ducks. Hmm. He's speaking Cantonese. Dotze, dotze. Thank you. Kinda weird that Ray decided to put on a Ching-style hat. Okay. You can also see that the guys, particularly Bill Murray, would have problems sometimes with the yellow hose on their outfits. Here in Chinatown, it's disconnected at both ends and just hanging on his belt. Oh yeah, and Dan Aykroyd's idea about the yellow hose, everybody. Cosplayers know the deal, but Dan's idea is that if they get so scared and urinate, it'll have somewhere to go. But it also has nowhere to go. The yellow hose just trails off into nothing. Anyway, sorry, sorry. I'm just not a fan of that stupid hose. It's unnecessary for the outfit, I think. I don't have it on my flight suit. Speeding through Little Italy now, Ecto-1 turns at Umberto's Clam House. That's the most famous building here in the montage. Early in the morning on April 7th, 1972, Mafia enforcer Joe Gallo was celebrating his birthday inside with family and friends. One or more men entered and shot Gallo multiple times. Gallo then stumbled outside and collapsed, and died soon after. Oh, and remember I said he was celebrating with friends? Earlier that night, his party included actor Jerry Orbach and his wife. You know, Law and Order Detective Briscoe Jerry Orbach? Beauty and the Beast? Ah, uh, I am a crazy French candlestick, be our guest, Jerry Orbach? Yeah, he was partying with Joe Gallo. Anyway, because it was a mob hit, a lot of people clammed up uh, at the clam house. Yeah, sorry. A lot of witnesses clammed up, and the police and public have never gotten an accurate picture of what happened. We don't know who the killer or killers were, if it was a planned hit or a spontaneous action. We do know the Orbachs were with Gallo's family earlier that night, but nobody's sure today if they were present or not for the shooting. Also, Don Rickles was very nearly present too. He was the entertainer they saw the previous night, and they all invited Rickles to join them. So that's Umberto's Clam House, and the murder of Joe Gallo in 1972. By the way, the restaurant moved a couple blocks away in 96, so if you go to Umberto's now, their present location is not where the murder took place. There's a Time magazine cover, and Bill is still wrestling with his leg hose and has it draped over his neck. 
If you check out the top right corner, The New Poets, it's a photo of producer and No Ghost co-designer Michael C. Gross. Hi, this is Larry King, shot from the back. And hey, he has a can of Coke to his left, clearly showing the label. Man, everyone in this movie really loves Coca-Cola. Pepsi? Pfft, get that out of here. But yes, about Larry King. Not everyone will remember, but Larry King had his national radio show starting in 78. By the time of the movie, people still had not seen him on TV. He would be on CNN starting in 85, so Ghostbusters hit just right before people became familiar with him on TV. I don't want to go outside of the movie too often, but in June 2020, the Josh Gad Reunited Apart show on Ghostbusters ended with a great cameo. After you think you've seen everyone that they're going to get to pop in, right after the credits, Larry King is reading his lines again, shot from behind so you don't even see his face. It's very cute. I haven't been mentioning, but for a lot of the scenes around town in the montage, they didn't have a permit. Bill Murray always talks about how he loved driving around Ecto-1 like this. They actually could get away with driving like they worked for the city or something. So they'd show up in Chinatown or Little Italy, shoot, and then get out of there. Well, for Rockefeller Plaza here, that was a place they did not have a permit, and an employee started chasing them to get out. Joe Medjick likes to tell that story, but looking at the footage, I can never figure out who it is that's chasing them. You're supposed to be able to see it, but I can't really tell. By the way, I think Dan and Bill must have really wanted to film out here, because they're right in front of where they used to film Saturday Night Live. By the way, the real Ghostbusters episode, Janine Melnitz Ghostbuster, partly takes place here at Rockefeller Plaza again. There's an Omni magazine dated October of 1984 with a proton pack. A lot of fans like that one, especially for the image of it. People were using that image for years to try to build better packs. And Egon comes out calling for Ray. And who's that walking by? Why, it's Joe Medjuk, who we haven't seen since, like, the start of the movie in the library. Hi, Joe. And there's a scene with Ray holding a trap and Peter slimed, and they're crowded by reporters. If you haven't figured out, that's outside the Biltmore Hotel, a.k.a. the Sedgwick, and they filmed that to actually show how the Ghostbusters launched to stardom just a minute ago in the movie. Turns out you didn't need to see them get to their car. We'll come back to this footage in a moment. There's a cover for The Atlantic, also October of 84. Huh. So I guess Ghostbusters, which came out in June of 84, was actually set a few months into the future. This image was drawn by Michael Gross's artist friend Randy Enos, who had worked with him at National Lampoon. It was handy having a magazine designer on the film, because then Gross was able to do a mock-up of these magazines all himself. The Atlantic gave permission to be included in the movie, and they used this. Oddly enough, years later, Randy Enos's illustrations would appear in the real Atlantic magazine, so it's kind of funny his first example is for this made-up cover. Oh, for the Santa Fe Democrat, dated August of 2019, Randy Enos said that the original art is owned by Ivan Reitman, so I bet it's probably hanging somewhere in the offices at Ghost Corps. The Ghostbusters run down the street. I believe this is Madison Avenue. Now this is what Ivan Reitman always mentions in interviews about filming the movie. They had Bill fly in from Paris, got him fitted for his costume, and before doing any real scenes, had them run down the street with the gear on, and this all just worked visually, and Ivan got a shiver, a feeling like this was all cool and was going to come together. So that's the shot right there. And lots of people are looking at them, checking them out. 
But hey, wouldn't you look over if you saw someone jog down the street with that getup? But even there, Bill still has something weird going on with his yellow hose. It's too long and looped twice around his belt. Ah. And Casey Kasem cuts in on the radio. We all love his voice. If you don't know, he was a nationally syndicated DJ. He had a top 40 countdown show, plus a call-in show for song requests. He was also a voice actor, doing plenty of Hanna-Barbera characters including Robin the Boy Wonder, but he's most recognized as Shaggy on Scooby-Doo. Oddly enough, that meant playing opposite Frank Welker as Fred. Frank Welker, of course, would play Ray and Slimer on the real Ghostbusters. Oh man, Deke should have really tried to get Casey Kasem as a guest on The Real Ghostbusters, at least for an episode. It would have been a fun joke considering, you know, his voice is also in the Ghostbusters movie. Anyway, yes, we hear Casey Kasem for like 15 seconds. What a great voice. Now the reason I really want to talk about him, in Making Ghostbusters, the 1985 book by Don Shea, Michael Gross said that Kasem added to the montage here was a very late addition. They contacted him, had him record some lines, and then had his audio in the movie the next day. A very quick turnaround, and all they wanted was his voice that they could insert over the song, not any new footage. But here's the rub. Jumping ahead in the movie to Lewis's party, the very tall, blonde woman saying, Lewis, I'm going home. That's Casey Kasem's second wife, Jean Kasem. They'd been married since 1980. So here's my point I find it difficult to believe that both Casey Kasem and Gene Kasem were hired for the movie independently. I think it must have been a case where, like, Gene Kasem was hired to be the woman at the party, then Joe Medjuk, or someone, discovered she was Casey Kasem's wife, and that got wheels turning to ask him to do this quick line on the radio. That's what I'm getting at. I'm not saying anything shady happened, just that, oh, you're Mrs. Kasem? Hey, can we call your place? Something like that, I think. By the way, this is depressing. If you remember the saga of Casey Kasem's final years, Jean here is the wife in those stories. Casey had children from his previous marriage, and in 2013 and 2014, Jean would not let them see their dad. That also meant she wouldn't let people know whether he was receiving care or not. After he died in 2014, Jean had Casey's body shipped off to Norway, where her mother is from, Never mind that Casey Kasem grew up in Detroit and had no connection to Norway himself. Yet his wife buried him there, just to be kept away from his family. Yeah, that's Gene Kasem, coming up later in the film. Yeah. Dana is cooking a meal in her kitchen. Not too concerned about that demon she saw in her fridge, but what are you gonna do? I like it that someone is probably telling her something funny and Sigourney Weaver is just laughing here. They'd have no shortage of people on set to tell her jokes. Oh, my favorite part here, a lot of people want specific Ghostbusters equipment they can cosplay with. Proton packs, of course, but also the calculators, the ghost sniffer Peter used, any little thing seen in the movie. Well, on the kitchen set here, Dana has a Cuisinart. My mom has that exact Cuisinart, and she still uses it. It's only 40 years old, I think. So I have you all beat, cosplayers. I can use the Cuisinart from Dana's kitchen. See you at the next fan convention, chumps. I'm going to sweep the cosplay awards with my Cuisinart. Speaking of familial connections a moment ago, we're back outside the Biltmore Hotel. You can really see now Peter is still covered in slime. No job is too big, no fee is too big is a great line. I love it. 
When you realize this is right after the scene with the hotel manager, what Peter is doing here is really putting an exclamation point on the $5,000 they charged for Slimer. Just adding to that joke. Oh, but I was talking about family connections. I mentioned this last time, Mrs. Van Houten was played by Katherine Jansen. Here's her son, Danny Nero, as the young guy with the dark hair, with his chin partly obscured by a camera. Again, this year he would also play a Vulcan guard in Star Trek III, The Search for Spock. Cut to Janine, overworked. The montage being cut up, Annie Potts is actually sitting opposite Ernie Hudson as she speaks to the telephone. The idea is, when we're introduced to Winston, the business is so busy and so weird, he's overhearing Janine's weird conversation with a customer. Instead, it was put over here. Cut to Dana, replacing a string on her cello. In a handy bit of serendipity, I suppose, Dana is watching TV on a portable Sony set. Sony, of course, would later buy Columbia Pictures. I find it a bit odd she has a regular TV and a portable one a few feet away in her bedroom. Whatever, we all know she's rich, living in that apartment. That host asking, How is Elvis, and have you seen him lately? is Joe Franklin. He hosted a long-running show in New York, The Joe Franklin Show, starting in 1950. In the 90s, he'd appear on Conan O'Brien and David Letterman, even a space ghost coast-to-coast. Oh, and on Simpsons, when they're stealing cable in Lisa vs. the Eighth Commandment, at the end when Homer is going to cut their cable and lamenting everything they'll miss out on, Cable clippers, please. Here you go, homie. Go for it, Dad. Dad, I beg you to reconsider. Tractor pulls. Atlanta Braves baseball. Joe Franklin. Globe magazine. Princess Di is expecting again. That's actually kind of important. We'll get to it in a minute. The photo of the guys is from the same one as the Time magazine cover. You can tell because Peter still has his yellow hose over his neck. And stop everything. Yeah. Here is, hands down, my least favorite part of the film. The, let's call her the dream ghost. First off, let's talk about the actress herself, because she's absolutely fine. Her name is Kim Heron, and it's hard to tell from the translucent effect and all, but yes, she's quite beautiful. She was featured in Playboy from 81 to 83, so you can see why the Ghostbusters production would want her. Other than here, I think she's mostly been in music videos, for ZZ Top and Kiss. Oh, but hey, I never knew this existed. In 1985, there was a movie called Moving Violations, starring Bill Murray's brother, John, and Kim Heron is in that movie. Huh. Do I need to cover Moving Violations for the podcast now? Well, one more thing about Kim Heron before we get to the scene. Thanks to historian and author Mark Tyler Nobleman, in 2013, he interviewed Kim Heron for his blog. It turns out that Heron had partied with Dan Aykroyd and John Belushi years previously, and they'd taken her to their little dingy blues bar they owned in New York. Kim also partied with Dan at some point in California as well. You'd think that would have led her to be cast in Ghostbusters here, but nope. It was just a coincidence. Dan was surprised to discover she was playing this ghost. Not that they actually filmed their scenes together, regardless. Once again, she was filmed over at Boss Films. Okay, to the scene itself. Dan Aykroyd has been mentioning this in interviews for some time now. He's described sexual interactions with ghosts, both by him and some of his friends. So he wanted to include this sort of experience in Ghostbusters. And then he also saw it as an opportunity to put in the raunchy, 
Animal House-style humor this group has been familiar with for some time. It doesn't fit. Frankly, can I say it's weird that this is a PG movie that leads you right up to a joke about fellatio? So this is Ross May's edit, everybody. If I had the power to change this movie, I'd cut out this scene and add in 20 seconds of a Stay Puft commercial before the Ghostbusters commercial in Dana's apartment, and I think that'd be it. That is my special edition of Ghostbusters. That's my complaint. But let's also cover the whys of this scene, because I think some people out there might not be familiar. Coming up in the movie, there's an entire night where Peter is with Zool, and Egon and Janine are taking care of Vince Clortho. You remember Winston and Ray are driving in Ecto-1, quoting Bible verses. That led to the Fort Depp marrying scene, cut from the movie. It would have explained what Winston and Ray were up to that night. Fort Det Mering is a fictional location, by the way, and the idea was that it was an old army fort turned into an historic attraction, and the Ghostbusters get called out. In the deleted scenes, Ray's goofing off and puts on an officer's uniform, lies on the bed, then falls asleep from exhaustion. See, the jokes about the Ghostbusters being run off their feet, especially Ray, are supposed to pay off in this scene. Yeah. And then the ghost wakes up Ray. Winston even walks by the door and asks if Ray is okay, and Ray tells him to go away. So weird. So they cut all this setup out of the movie. You don't really need to know that Winston and Ray were up to that night. You just see them roll up in the car when the containment unit explodes anyway. But they still had this special effects shot with Kim Heron on a soundstage, hanging by wires and a rigid mold they cast from her body, and fans were blowing wind up at her. It was probably a lot of work, so let's make it a dream Ray is having. And then, let's include a scene of all three guys having sex dreams, so maybe the ghosts are giving all of them wet dreams? Hey, maybe all wet dreams are actually supposed to be caused by ghosts? I mean, sorry, that's probably what Dan and his friends were really experiencing when they were thinking they were getting romantic with ghosts. Gah, I'm not the only one who thinks this is weird, right? The group aspect especially bothers me. So I think this is one of the movie's missteps, and it's still there just because they worked hard on that effect and didn't want to waste it, not to mention it's something Dan Aykroyd was passionate about. Hey, did you know that you can get from Street Fighter to Avatar? Or that it's just a quick detour from the collector to Elektra? Join us on Filmstrips, the podcast that explores all the connections you never knew existed. Each episode, David and I throw a brand new film under the microscope. Maybe it's a musical. Maybe it's a monster movie. Maybe it's terrible. The only rule is that it has to connect to the episode before. So join us each week for a brand new episode available on iTunes, Podomatic, or wherever free podcasts are sold. Get yourself a shotgun seat as we take a long, strange trip through the movies. The Ghostbusters are back in theaters, and to celebrate, you can get Ghostbusters 2 items. Have we all gone mad? I guess so, Pete, because that's not all. Why not? You can show support for this podcast and even get a great looking No Ghost Peace logo and 10 Tops trading cards. Check out patreon.com slash rossmayrider. Items available while they last. Thanks and enjoy the podcast.
we are just about to be introduced to Ernie Hudson playing Winston Zeddemore. What a name. But I want to talk about something first, though. Remember back in Stripes, I pointed out how that was like two movies in one. There was Can Bill Murray and Harold Ramis survive army training? And then they did. And then they had another crazy adventure. Or talk about Animal House and Meatballs. They're funny, but they're also just an assembly of little sketches. What's going on with the guys at the frat? What's going on with Otter seducing Mrs. Wormer? Let's take a road trip to a bar out of town. Or in Meatballs, this kid is sad, but what's going on with the Camp Olympics? Let's leave the camp now and go on a canoe trip. I'm not meaning to be rude, but I think Ivan and friends involved would cop to it. They're movies with premises for funny things to happen, not that different from all the sketch shows they've been doing. They'd improved for Stripes, which actually has a through line, then restarts, then has another through line. Ghostbusters hides this even more because it feels like it's all of a piece, but it very nearly isn't. The Ghostbusters were kicked out of university, they weren't taken seriously, and now ghosts are real and the guys are making money and become minor celebrities. The plot thread that began in their campus office could be considered concluded. And just think what we're setting up now. Winston joining the crew, Walter Peck wanting to shut them down. Apart from Zool saying hi in the fridge, the Gozer as a threat content is all really post-montage. Heck, we're introduced to the containment unit, setting up so it can be blown up later in this part of the movie. Ghostbusters doesn't really do a third act twist or anything. Instead, they're almost doing a restart of the movie. I mean, not totally, of course, but they're introducing characters and elements now in the movie, and they're leaving early material behind in the dust. The library and its ghost aren't mentioned again, despite the fact that you could technically call that an unresolved plot thread. I don't want to put too much weight on this. Animal House and Meatballs, not to mention Ramus's Caddyshack, were all loose, almost sketch movies. Stripes was tighter, but kind of had this hard stop and restart in the middle of the movie. Structurally, Ghostbusters is tighter still, but you can still see that division that was present in their older work. Zedmore, Peck, the containment unit, and honestly the threat of the apocalypse is all gearing up now. We do know why this works as well as it does, though. The rest of the movie will continue the theme of the Ghostbusters proving themselves, now just on the biggest scale possible. The other real through-line is Dana, and how we were introduced to her, and how Peter will ultimately prove himself to her. That's honestly why the movie hangs together. So, just something to think about. Ivan and his crew improved at crafting through-lines and overall plots, and not just funny scene, funny scene, and break. And here's who we've been waiting for, everybody. Ernie Hudson playing Winston Zeddemore. I'll tell you a story. My son has watched the real Ghostbusters for some time and plays with my old toys. In preparing for the podcast, I showed him the movie and he was digging it, but when they were zapping Slimer, he asked, Dad, where's Winston? That's a very good question. As much as Dan Aykroyd and Ivan Reitman talk about needing a straight man, a Ghostbuster who can comment on the weirdness the other guys take for granted, they sure do wait until halfway through the film before bringing him in. When Ernie Hudson first got the part, Winston came in much earlier, and he had a backstory about being in the Air Force and being proficient in fighting and with weapons and explosives. I think the idea, the joke going in was probably that Winston was actually a more capable person in just about every capacity except for the science of catching ghosts. So Winston would probably be showing up the other guys a fair bit. 
Winston was also going to have more jokes. In making Ghostbusters, Harold says that a lot of the jokes written for Winston were later shifted back to Peter. And this all kind of sucked for Ernie Hudson. First, a lot of his scenes were cut, and he's left wondering, so am I one of the heroes in this movie or not? And it doesn't help that the marketing, like the poster, doesn't care about him. Yeah, this all doesn't look good, does it? It sounds like the person Ernie could really communicate with the most was Harold. Ernie had all these legitimate questions, and Ivan Reitman was probably too busy to consider what Ernie was thinking and feeling about all this, so it was Harold who said something like, It's not about anything you've done. Sorry, it's just what the movie is now. Please don't take it personally. I could go on about diminishing Winston and the optics of this, how it's almost a double-edged sword for Ernie Hudson. He's said before this didn't help out his career the way he figured, or the way a lot of people were telling him that it would. That said, I mean, Ernie Hudson has done better than a lot of other actors in Hollywood. I think he's got about the right perspective on being a Ghostbuster. He definitely knows it's made millions of people happy, and he's a part of it. And if nothing else, I'll share one thing. A few years ago, he had Ghostbusters and Congo pinball machines installed in his house. I think that's a pretty good sign that he has affection for these movies he's been in. I think everyone loves Janine's bored attitude with the outlandish questions she's asking. That kind of sums up the movie again, doesn't it? Here are all these fantastical ideas, but we're going to treat them as not only real, but mundane. And everyone also loves his response. If there's a steady paycheck in it, I'll believe anything you say. A good joke, and I think if there's an added bit to this, the fact that in a normal job, if you let on that you believed in all of those things, a business should probably not hire you. But here, up is down, and cats and dogs live together, and it's better to believe in the Loch Ness Monster. Ray needs to get some sleep. Gah, which Dan probably wrote to set up how he'll fall asleep for the Fort Detmering scene. But Peter has a lot of great lines, complimenting Ray even when they're talking about being overworked and getting no sleep. Ray mentions, oh great, two more free repeaters. I used to think that meant there were repeat jobs they had to do gratis, like they didn't properly exterminate and need to go back to. In the script, it's made clear that they're free roaming repeaters. It's really some of Ray's technical jargon, and those ghosts aren't tied down to one specific spot. I'm not sure what a repeater ghost is, though. Now, just before we leave, the movie is cut up again. Ray and Winston go downstairs, and that will later lead us into the containment unit Twinkie scene. Meanwhile, right here, this is where we cut away, Janine tells Peter about Walter Peck. So these scenes all flowed together. Introduce Winston, argue with Peck, then go down to the containment unit. But things were broken up, and we're not going to do that. We're leaving the firehouse behind and flying back to New York and Lincoln Center. This is kind of weird to think about, but after Dana has met the Ghostbusters in the firehouse, and Peter has harassed her in her apartment, this is actually Sigourney Weaver's first scene to be filmed. Her smiling and being charmed by Peter? When you think about it, she should really be more annoyed by him because he was such a creep earlier. I mean, it's partly just written this way, but I think Sigourney also plays Dana more smiley and amicable to Peter partly because they haven't done that apartment scene yet. Or maybe this is just me. By the way, if I haven't mentioned it already, it was Sigourney's idea for Dana to play in an orchestra. Before that, Dan and Harold figured Dana would be a model, which... Look, I like those guys, but I think that demonstrates kind of the limits to their way of thinking. 
Dana's the love interest, and she's beautiful. I think Sigourney suggesting she plays in the New York Philharmonic leads to so much more, like the setting for the scene, Elmer Bernstein having a cello start out for her theme, and most of all, suggesting a level of sophistication to Dana. Peter has chased after pretty women, he does it in the first scene of the film, but an educated woman like this is a challenge for Peter and makes her more interesting for the audience too. The Stiff is played by Tim Carhart, and yeah, he's a familiar character actor. Did you see him in Roseanne or Star Trek The Next Generation? But he's had a couple other kind of famous roles, usually as jerks. In Black Sheep, the Chris Farley, David Spade movie, Tim Carhart is the mean campaign manager trying to keep Chris Farley away from his brother. And in Thelma and Louise, he's the guy they kill. Yeah. I think Tim Carhart knows he has a punchable, or even a killable, face. He might as well be one of the Omegas from Animal House, now graduated and in New York. One more bit on the stiff. For years, it's been suggested he's the father of baby Oscar in Ghostbusters 2. I think this is just casting around for any other man Dana has interacted with, but I suppose it makes sense. They work together, and Dana at least respects him as a violinist. To my knowledge, this idea was never written down, but Sigourney must have asked about it when filming the sequel so she has voiced that this guy here is Oscar's dad. Ivan Reitman and Joe Medjick say that's probably the case. But I also don't think Ivan's thought too hard about this. In a 2016 Rolling Stone interview, Ivan said Peter might be Oscar's dad. I guess that's possible, but I also think it's a case where Ivan totally forgot the content of Ghostbusters 2. Peter makes it very clear he thinks he is not Oscar's dad, so it would be messed up if Dana kept that a secret from him. Anyway, anyway, if you want, you can say Dana was later with this guy and Oscar is their baby. Oh, by the way, no, he doesn't have a name in the script or anything, though in the novelization, Richard Mueller named him Richard Wallens. So this nice scene at the fountain was Sigourney's first thing filmed in the movie. The fountain going also meant most of what they said had to be looped in later. If you watch their mouths, you can sort of tell the audio is too clear at times in the movie. Ha. Then there's this wide shot of the fountain, which was just so that they didn't have to match up some of the dialogue for a while. It's pretty, but if you pay attention, you can tell they're trying to save some work. Oh, the wide shot. Here's some history, everyone. Check out the flags. They're at half-mast. This made me investigate why they're at half-mast and I figured it out. American and French peacekeepers were stationed in Beirut during the decades-long Lebanese Civil War. In October 23, 1983, two trucks packed with explosives ran into the barracks, the drivers committing suicide. 241 American military personnel, 58 French personnel, and six civilians were killed, with more injured. I believe this still stands as the deadliest day for U.S. armed forces since the Vietnam War. Nobody is sure who carried out the suicide bombings, but it might have been Hezbollah. If it was Hezbollah, this would probably be America's first interaction with them. Sorry to bring up sad information again, everyone, but this gives you a sense of time. The flags are at half-mast because the October 23rd attacks in Beirut had killed American Armed Forces members. Ha! Peter is way off talking about 6000 BC. The first known writing only dates back to 3000s BC. He can't say Hittites here, so maybe he wrote it down wrong or misspoke and meant 1600 BC, which would actually make sense. 
Actually, 6000 BC would have been too early for the Sumerians, and if you meant 1600 BC, that'd technically be too late for the Sumerians. Though I guess Old Tobin's spirit guide could have meant people in the post-Sumerian Empire. Just so we're all clear, Zul and Gozer, along with Vince Clortho coming up later, all these names are not authentic to any of these ancient societies. In making Ghostbusters, Dan Aykroyd says that the name Gozer was scrawled over walls in a haunted house that inspired the movie Poltergeist. Uh, nobody else has been able to corroborate this claim. I've always noticed this. Peter asks Dana out on a date, I mean a professional dinner, on Thursday night. I know the Ghostbusters are busy, so maybe that's just the time he had available, but it's a little presumptuous to think she'd be available on a Thursday night. This made me look up calendars in 1983 and 84. If we're talking about 83 when they actually filmed this, he might have been talking about November 10th, because the 11th was Veterans Day. If we're talking about the fall of 84, when the magazine covers really seem to say this movie takes place, there's no holiday on a Friday. So yeah, Peter just picked a day, but I think it's possible the crew might have been looking at the 83 calendars and thinking of the date before Veterans Day, so a date on November 10th. I know, I know, this doesn't technically jive with the rest of the movie. I'm just trying to muddle through what I believe the thought process was on production. So here, I'm just guessing they're imagining the date to be November 10th, which is why a Thursday would have made sense in 1983. Peter mentions one more supernatural book, Roiland's Guide. It's hard to hear what he's saying, but he's telling her he'll bring the Roiland's Guide to look over Zool and all that bad stuff. Man, the stiff is a bit over the top. Who the hell is that? Man, Peter was just talking to Dana, dude. Again, this guy is straight out of the Omegas and Animal House. He's probably fraternity brothers with Walter Peck and the hotel manager. What I really love is Bernstein turning Dana's theme into a waltz, perfect for dancing. See, he has these themes and ideas, but he's totally willing to play around with what's on the screen. The little piano moments inspired by Bill Murray in the apartment scene, waltzing now because it leads up to Peter spinning with the guy on roller skates, it's great. two more things about the fountain scene. Roger Bay, the man who owned the black Ecto-1, was in the crowd watching this scene. Also, Dustin Hoffman, Bill Murray's pal from Tootsie, came by and said hi while they were filming. Oh, oh, I'm a real Ghostbusters fan. The episode A Fright at the Opera takes place at Lincoln Center and the Met. Back to LA. Man, I'm getting jet-lagged. But seriously, back to the basement of Fire Station number 23, and the scene that was supposed to follow, Winston's introduction. The one wall with the containment unit is false, so light can pour out of it later. But it's otherwise the real basement room in the firehouse. Which I find funny because I would have thought this might be easier to do on a soundstage. I guess the camera and crew were all crammed against the far wall, which is why you never see it. Also, it kind of looks like Egon and Ray built the containment unit into the wall, which seems like a lot of extra work. Huh. 
Ray mentions them catching Slimers at this point, just as a callback to Peter's joke at the hotel. The busboy song, Cleaning Up the Town, also mentions Slimers. A couple of years later, it took a while for the real Ghostbusters production to pick up on that and that it should be Slimer's name. At first they were calling him the Green Ghost, which was even reflected in his toys. Here's William Atherton playing Walter Peck. I won't go into him too much, but he's been in several movies by this point, including Sugarland Express, Steven Spielberg's theatrical debut. Of course, Atherton's most famous roles are Peck here and the reporter Richard Thornburg in the Die Hard movies. Hey, along with another Ghostbusters actor we'll meet in a little while. Atherton has also remained a prominent stage actor. I can even tell you what he was doing right before filming Ghostbusters. From May until November 6th in 83, he was in the Broadway revival of the Kane Mutiny Court Martial. Then Atherton was able to do the firehouse exterior and city hall scenes, then fly off to L.A. It's kind of neat to be able to see what people were doing right before filming. He was on Broadway. In Ghostbusters Ultimate Visual History, Atherton says it didn't make sense trying to compete to be funny, so he was going to play his role super seriously, like he's in a drama when everyone else is in a comedy. He makes the comparison of himself to Margaret Dumont, the woman who always played snooty killjoys for the Marx Brothers to make fun of. I'd make another comparison, He's kind of like the character Frank Grimes from that one episode of Simpsons. The whole premise of that episode is that Grimes is like an outsider to the fiction of Simpsons. Grimes ends up going crazy trying to get people to see what he sees, that Homer is irresponsible and an idiot. Walter Peck is much the same way. We'll get to it later, but I mean, he's not wrong that the Ghostbusters have dangerous equipment and not enough accountability. Anyway, Peter goes over to speak with Peck. And again, Peter has slime on him and a lit cigarette from his scene getting out of the car with Ray. So while the other guys are downstairs right now, Peter is the worst guy to handle Peck on his own. Yeah, Peck speaks condescendingly, but you know, his questions are reasonable. So you claim to catch ghosts. Okay, you store them here? The actual far-out element to this scene that a lot of people have pointed out is that it's a wonder that the Environmental Protection Agency had enough funding and Walter Peck had enough initiative to go check the Ghostbusters out. They need some government agency to act as the bad guy, but it's pretty funny that the EPA would have the real power here. When Peck walks away, notice how Janine is poking her head around the filing cabinets. She's not subtle about observing them. You did not use the magic word. What is the magic word, Mr. Venkman? And Atherton kind of half breaks, smiling, but it looks sinister enough that it works. I'm pretty sure that exchange was ad-libbed. Yeah, I know it's in the shooting script, but the shooting script in Making Ghostbusters includes a lot of stuff as they filmed it. I don't think you can trust it to suss out what was and was not ad-libbed. But anyway, go get your court order. There's also really no reason for Peter to have taken this tack. He could have gone and conferred with Egon and Ray about it. But anyway, you need an officious enemy to shut down the Ghostbusters. Hey, here's a more recent discovery by fans. So in the Globe paper during the montage, the top reads Princess Di is expecting again. Here in the office, when Peck is looking down and the lamp is to the left, look above the lamp. You can see another globe stuck to the wall, and it reads, Triplets for the Princess. Ha, that's quite a gag for the props people. Just running through it a bit, the pregnancy announcement is dated October 1984. 
I don't think anyone can really see the date on the second globe. If we were to be really nitpicky to go by what the papers say, that must mean Ghostbusters starts in the fall of 84. When does it end? Well, a royal pregnancy announcement wouldn't happen right at the start, but probably not right before a birth either. I don't know, so maybe six to three months in advance? So if the montage is in October, everything with Winston on should be like January to March of 85. I guess this could work, because it's not like New York suddenly switched to summer or anything. But anyway, anyway, that's only if you take the movie super seriously, which I don't think you probably should. By the way, Prince William was already born in 82, and Harry was born in September of 84. So in this world, Harry is one of triplets, I guess. To Downstairs, the subtle jokes about Egon's snacking habits reaches its punchline. Let's do some complex math comparing a Twinkie to psychic kinetic energy in New York. Yahoo! It's Twinkie the Kid! Wow! Howdy, partners! Come on to Hostess Twinkie Town for some golden sponge cake Twinkies. Watch out! They're stealing the Hostess Twinkies! Watch this. Here's your award. Thanks! Mmm, <gasps> creamy filling! Yep, you get a big delight in every bite of Hostess Twinkies. Once upon a time, Twinkies were around 36 to 42 grams a cake. I noticed this disparity by checking multiple old boxes online. Whatever, we'll keep things simple and say 40 grams a Twinkie. Egon says the current PKE Twinkie is 600 pounds. I'm Canadian and am going to call that 272 kilograms. dum de dum by mass alone, the PKE in New York is up 6,800 times a single Twinkie. So by mass, you need to eat 6,800 Twinkies to equal all the ghostly activity going on in New York. I compared my math to what other people have done online. The main conclusion everyone reached is that Egon's ratios between mass and size do not work out. A 35-foot Twinkie cannot equal 600 pounds. If he meant the Twinkie only gained in length, it's a really long and really skinny Twinkie, then that's an increase of 105 times, a far cry from the 6,800 he gave for mass. So let's do this one more time and say that the Twinkie grows in length, height, and width. It's 35 feet long, weighs 50 tons, and is over a million times the size of a single Twinkie. Egon, you're letting us down. Your math is all over the place on this one. It's a good thing you did that loan equation correctly coming out of the bank earlier. Anyway, take your pick. If you want a long, skinny Twinkie, then the PKE is up 105 times. If you go by his mass figure, it's up 6,800 times. If you want a proportionally sized, 35-foot-long Twinkie, so it also gains in height and width too, and is now the perfect pillow for a big marshmallow man, by the way, but doing that, you're up over a million times the standard PKE in the tri-state area. Now that's a big Twinkie. In other news, check Peter's yellow hose coming down the steps. He seems to really be having problems with it in the movie. When Peter asks how the grid is holding up, this was probably the scene where Egon was going to show him inside the containment unit through a viewer. Concept artist Bernie Wrightson drew some pictures of what it would look like in there with skeletal ghosts wailing in agony. Too intense and scary, I think. The production just ran out of time to show this, plus it would have been hard to make look good, 
with lots of ghosts being locked in a void. Again, for more information on how Ghostbusters followed up on this idea, please listen to my 2019 Xmas Marks the Spot episode. The terror dogs are waking up. What was it? In making Ghostbusters, they mentioned this scene. They were supposed to use a compound on the statues that would easily break. So one guy's working at it, working at it for this scene, and the faux statue just isn't breaking. Turns out they used the harder stuff. I'm assuming they recast the mold. Speaking of the terror dogs coming to life, I always kind of wondered what's going on at the eye. I mean, the claws break open because they flex. But it's kind of obvious someone needed to break open the eye from the inside. Whatever, the point is that it looks cool. I love Dana sneaking by Lewis's apartment, and him still noticing her. Even when he has that tall blonde woman in his party, he still has a huge crush on Dana. And, annoying as he is, Dana still can't help but smile at this guy. And again, the gag about him getting locked out of his apartment? A keymaster he ain't. Yet. Dana gets a call from her mom. We learn that her dad's still alive, too. When she mentions, just that one time, I assume she's talking about seeing something in her fridge. Even this little bit is kind of sweet, you know, showing that Dana talks to her folks on the phone. But then, monsters. I have to wonder if the bright light coming from the kitchen was inspired by the bright lights from doorways in Poltergeist. Of course, the door there is really latex, so they could press up against it. Actually, if you're wondering what's on the other side making those indentations, Making Ghostbusters says it's actually test lumps of foam from the Marshmallow Man. Heh, neat. So it's not supposed to be any particular shape, just some weird lumpiness. Three monster hands reach out of the chair. My understanding is this was Ivan's idea for a cool, scary visual. The guys working the hands were all nervous, not wanting to grab Sigourney's breasts or anything. And she had to tell them, Guys, it's okay. You need to go for it. And then they did, and you get this great, scary scene. Probably the scariest in the movie, right? And here we go, a real tour de force, everyone. The party scene. Just watch it again. I said last episode, as impressed as I am by everyone in the film, Rick Moranis is the MVP. Yeah, Bill Murray ad-libbed and played a lot with his dialogue, but Rick Moranis figured out this character and came up with everything. How he'd lecture someone on buying acetacetacilic acid, even breaking down the price. Real smoked salmon from Nova Scotia, Canada. Shades of Bob McKenzie shining through. And how he's so clever, he admits to a client that he's throwing the party as a business expense, and these aren't even his real friends. I love it. And announcing everyone's business. It's so tacky, so rude, but he's too cheerful and clueless to realize you love him for that. Hey, speaking of telling everybody's business... Ted and Annette Fleming's mortgage on their home is 8%, which is probably normal for the time. So yeah, the Ghostbusters were really getting screwed at 19% on their loan. And hey, I think this is the one pop song in the movie that's not on the soundtrack. Disco Inferno by The Tramps from 1976. You have to go back to the 83-84 mindset, but the gag really is that disco sucks. All the SNL people are too cool for disco. And you're a cool person coming to see Ghostbusters in the theater, so you know disco sucks too, right? It's an added layer of Louis Tully being uncool here.
I don't know. I think Disco Inferno is a pretty fun song to dance to. Am I uncool? Was I ever cool? Eh. If you look carefully before Lewis opens his bedroom door, he has his accountancy diploma, a goofy graduation photo of himself. He's so damn proud to be an accountant, guys. And on the table, a bust of John F. Kennedy. The woman wanting aspirin is Patty Dworkin. And guys, I missed something in heavy metal. I'm so ashamed. Patty Dworkin voiced a reporter outside the Pentagon in heavy metal. So she has one line in heavy metal, and she's here in Ghostbusters. Huh. She has an interesting distinction, then. Patty Dworkin and Harold Ramis are the only two actors who are in both heavy metal and Ghostbusters. Huh. Patty Dworkin is more interesting than you might realize, everyone. She grew up in Detroit, and guys, guys, SNL actress Gilda Radner grew up in Detroit, and her mom's maiden name was Dworkin. I'm wondering. Dworkin's an unusual name. I think Patty Dworkin and Gilda Radner might have been related. Maybe. I don't know. Just a bit more. Patty Dworkin did a lot of commercials, and she claims she was the first voice of Snuggles, the teddy bear mascot for Snuggle brand fabric softener. But I see the same claim by another actress. So I don't know if she's the original voice of Snuggle, but she definitely voiced that teddy bear for a time in commercials. She didn't do a ton of acting, but she's in Airplane 2 and Mr. Mom, Night Court and A Law and Order. She married in 1987, and she and her husband, Andrew Friedman, ran a public relations firm. She passed away in 2017. I mentioned at the montage, the tall woman is Jean Kasem, so I'd kind of like to know the exact details of getting her and Casey Kasem's voice on the movie. She's obviously there partly for the visual of her being so tall to Rick Moranis's five foot six, I think. The terror dog in the bedroom, guys. There are photos of Bill Murray standing off to one side during this scene. So when you see the coat landing on the terror dog, just imagine Bill Murray might be off to our right. I'm not saying he's definitely present right during this shot, but there's a good chance. I know that it apparently took a long time to get this scene perfect, just throwing coats perfectly. Okay, who brought the dog? Back to Moranis being the MVP, I pointed out that I think that one area Ivan Reitman has been a bit unfair is to John Candy. I think in the scripts, Lewis Tully was so underdeveloped, he was just a tacky host and a womanizer, and the only comedy built into the Lewis stuff was his confusion over whether there were dogs or giant monsters inside his apartment. That's not incredibly funny, so John Candy just suggested playing up the dog angle. So my take is, Rick Moranis, awesome. John Candy, his ideas for Lewis weren't as weird as people think, because I believe this scene didn't have a lot going on written down. The terror dog stop-motion animations are some of the weakest effects in the movie, but what are you gonna do? I think Boss Films did a great job given the time frame. They had, like, no time for some of the shots. Heh, <laughs> and everybody loves that woman who comes out of her apartment, yells, Huh! and goes back in. She's Ida Reese Marin, who acted for years and years, I believe in small parts, but I'm not familiar with a lot of her older work. But hey, Disney fans, she's one of the witches in The Black Cauldron. That's cool. She played Ordu, the tall witch. Marin passed away in 1998. Your room is full of cauldrons. I don't understand. Why would, why would anyone want so many? <laughs> Someone stole all our frogs! 
evil, nasty people. You shall all be turned into frogs and eaten. Getting off track. I never get off track, do I? No, not me. Never. Anyway, next year, Elmer Bernstein would be scoring The Black Cauldron for Disney. Neat. But you can hear him also building off his work in Ghostbusters. He used the DX7 synth again, even in scenes with the witches. He made those twang noises on the synth again. Just these little eerie blips. Ha, it's fun to hear him do that. If you get the chance, consider watching The Black Cauldron after watching Ghostbusters, if only to hear the similarities in the music. Now I call on my army of the dead. The Cauldron Born. Arise, my messengers of death. Our Back to our story. Lewis runs into Central Park, talking up more about big animals in the building. Again, only now is Moranis working with the main joke that was written down, confusion over what the terror dogs are. By the way, terror dogs. Like proton packs, also not named in the movie. They get their names from the earlier scripts, where it was considered that they might be more dog-like, maybe even actual gross zombie dog corpses. The name just stuck around in production. It's deleted scene time. I think all the disc releases have this scene. Bill Murray and Dan Aykroyd played two homeless guys walking in Central Park. And it's over the top. Murray is even wearing a box around his neck and speaking in his slurred speech, like Carl Spackler from Caddyshack. Lewis Tully runs into them, upsetting the guys, and then the terror dog runs by them as well. This idea leaned a little too far into Saturday Night Live territory. The thinking was that, hey, why not have these SNL guys play different characters in the movie? That's been done before. That's in Dr. Strangelove with Peter Sellers, Eddie Murphy and Mike Myers, both big Peter Sellers fans, by the way, but Eddie Murphy and Mike Myers would make this a big part of their movies in a few years, playing multiple roles in makeup and prosthetics. But here, A, it's so obviously the leads of the movie it's weird, and B, it doesn't help that it only happens here. If they had played ghosts or snooty hotel patrons earlier, well, frankly, it might still be jarring, but then you'd get what this movie was doing. Better to just cut it entirely. If you're going to have your leads play multiple characters, my belief is that you need to be upfront about that early in your movie for audiences to accept what you're doing. Ivan Reitman always compared this scene to Shakespeare, having the gravediggers do their shtick in Hamlet, or have the porter, the drunk man at the castle gate, in Macbeth just cut away from the story to have some levity. But I'm doubly glad they didn't do this, because they shouldn't insert this weird scene in the middle of Lewis's chase. It just deflates that action sequence. Anyway, I don't need to be upset, because they made the right call and they cut this. Lewis runs to the Tavern on the Green, and that statue of an eagle biting a snake was put there by the production. I think John DeCure and Joe Medjuk wanted more statues around, again the visual theme in the movie. 
Anyway, Tavern on the Green is a restaurant, opened in 1934, and it is indeed very close to 55 Central Park West, so Lewis ran to the closest building in the park. Everyone in the restaurant not caring about Lewis. That sure is some social commentary right there, isn't it? I also kind of wonder what they're seeing. They turn when the terror dog growls, so maybe they hear something, but then evidently they don't see it. Did the terror dog turn invisible right at that moment and possess Lewis? Eh. Speaking of possession and the terror dogs, I want to back up a moment. Dan Aykroyd's original idea was that Dana wouldn't be human at all. She was a shape-shifting being from another dimension. Oddly enough, the name of her species, or type, would be called Zool, and that later transformed into the name of her terror dog. Anyway, in his early scripts, Dana wasn't human. She came to Earth escaping Gozer, I guess, and romanced Venkman, and after a night together she turned into more of a terror dog creature, kind of a warthog. And that's the joke. <laughs> oh, he thought he was having sexy times with a beautiful woman, but she ended up being a gross monster. Uh. Anyway, they realized, make her human, put her in peril from the ghosts and the monsters, and then this is all making more sense. Still, you ever wonder at the mechanics of summoning Gozer? Let's go run through the plan. So Zool and Vince Clortho, and I love that Lewis's terror dog has a first and last name, by the way, Vince Clortho. But those two manifest and break out of their statues. But Gozer can't do the same, they need to summon the Traveler. So what the terror dogs do see is they need to have sex in a ritual. But just having sex themselves won't cut it. No, no, no. They need to pick out specific humans who live in Shandor's Tower, very close to the Temple of Gozer. Okay, haunt Dana Barrett, possessor, done. Louis Tully got farther away and ran out of the building. Does Vince Clortho possess anyone else at the party? Oh no, that won't do. For some reason, you need Lewis Tully specifically, so go possess him. Now the possessed humans need to find each other again, which is kind of difficult if one ran farther away and is kind of stupid now. But if the possessed humans find each other, then they have sex. It's okay, there's a very hard, very uncomfortable stone bench for that. So the humans are going to have sex, check. Then lightning will erupt and Gozer will reach Earth, and the terror dogs can become themselves again. I mean, who wanted to stay a human being anyway? Being a human is only good for... sex, apparently. Far be it from me to question the... religious rights of Gozer, but I think there might be some easier steps in all of this. If the point was to get the terror dogs to have sex to open a door... Don't you just hate that, everybody? You lock yourself in a room and you need to have sex so the door will unlock? But if the terror dogs are just going to turn back into their real forms, why not let them do their business in their real forms? And Dana might be special because of her proximity to the temple, but what's so special about Lewis that his terror dog chased him to ground level? I'm just having a hard time understanding the mechanics of these arcane rituals. I need Egon and Ray to explain this all to me. Ahem. We're kind of still in this theological mindset because Peter is about to meet Zool. I love it how Peter knocks on the door and his weird, hello. And finally, Sigourney Weaver gets in on the fun with all this weird acting. Oh hey, according to Making Ghostbusters, Bill Murray selected her orange outfit. It works. It's 80s, but also a little bit otherworldly, especially with a wind machine, hair and makeup. Slime everywhere. I know it's just to show how ghostly energy is about, but I kind of wonder what the ghosts or monsters were up to. 
Like, did they feel the need to slather ectoplasm everywhere? I always notice that the pillowcases and all the covers are mostly off Dana's bed. Maybe Zul was trying to figure out how to make the bed or something. You know, I could do another podcast just on really the sexual dynamics of Ghostbusters. Even if it's less horny than, say, Animal House, there's a current of sex to a lot of the goings-on. The, ugh, the dream ghost. There's Janine pining for Egon, that I really like. There's Lewis pining for Dana that's going to meet a weird resolution in a bit. And there's Peter smitten with Dana. There's something weird to be said about how Dana is only sexually open, aggressive even, when she's possessed by a demon. Is this 100% Zool talking, or is the demon finally able to bring out Dana's own sexual desires? I can't really reach a conclusion on this. I suppose it's something that Sigourney Weaver thought a lot of this material for her was very funny. Also separate, you've still got Janine, and I like it that Janine isn't hyper-feminine in every scene. I mean, she wears warm, practical clothing and looks kind of nebbish herself. But there's this non-sexpot woman who has the hots for a tall nerd, Egon. So I think there's a realization here that there's a lot of different attractions to be had. Man, not that it's bad, but they really do sex Janine up for Ghostbusters 2, don't they? Oh, one last thing. Richard Mueller really picked up on this for his novelization of the film. We hear Dana's inner thoughts on whether or not she's really attracted to Peter, and how far she would go with him. There's a scene in the book where invisible spirits feel up and tickle women working at an office. Heck, the book goes into the librarian's sex life at the start of the story. This almost comes off as a bit much at times, but I get it that Mueller really noticed this undercurrent of people being motivated by sex, and whether or not they have defenses against sexual advances, and so he just cranked up that dial even more in the book. But hey, here's where we see the line drawn for Peter Venkman. Yeah, he's a woman chaser. He'll lie about psychic powers to get with a woman. And yeah, when offered sex, he'll still momentarily joke yes, but he's not about to take advantage of Dana's body under these pretenses. You know, I pointed out the few times Ghostbusters has referenced other ghost media, but all in all, there's surprisingly few references. But here, in general... It's like The Exorcist. A much toned-down version, but you're still supposed to understand this is like The Exorcist. I guess that part of the comedy is, instead of a couple of stoic Catholic priests, you have Bill Murray making light of the situation. If you watch, you can tell there are parts where Bill Murray had to ADR his lines. There is no Dana, only Zool. Like Slimer's voice, that's Ivan Reitman again. The Dana floating effect has always fascinated me. If it wasn't clear before this scene was parodying The Exorcist, this moment makes it more obvious. It's much like the dream ghost trick with Kimberly Heron, only a little bit more complicated. Sigourney Weaver is wearing a cast around her midsection to support herself. In the book Ghostbusters, The Inside Story by Matt McAllister, Ivan Reitman points out that they did this exact trick for his Broadway-produced musical The Magic Show, aka Spellbound, back in the 70s. They'd have a woman levitate and turn on stage as well, so Ivan was already familiar with how this trick could be accomplished. Sigourney is wearing a rigid body cast down to her knees. Notice that she acts a lot with her arms and face, but her legs can't move as much because they're almost locked into place by the cast. At about her hips are two metal rings inside of each other. The inner ring rotates, along with Sigourney, while the outer ring is attached to a horizontal rod. 
the rod is hidden in the shot by Sigourney's body and dress, and the rod goes through a slit in the drapes against the far wall. The machine, including a piston that could raise and lower the rig, is actually behind Dana's wall, opposite us. There's a fan blowing in the room too, to try to make things more unearthly as well, but you can also see the drapes move slightly, particularly in a brief close-up on Bill. I have to wonder if the drapes were really shifting a little bit because the rod is rising along the slit. Fortunately, the wind, and an added eerie wind sound effect, helps confuse this detail. You can see a little bit of this setup in the book Making Ghostbusters. I wish they'd show the rod and machinery a bit more clearly in production photos. In the movie, when Bill goes behind her flowing dress for a moment to get on the bed, he's ducking his head right underneath the rod. Also, notice that Sigourney turns 180 degrees, not a full 360. If they showed a full turn of her body, that would ruin the effect because then you'd have to either see a rip in her dress for the rod, or else her flowing skirt would get bunched up on the rod. You can't do a full turn with this setup without ruining the trick. When they filmed this on a first take, everything looked great, but then they noticed you could spot the shadow of the rod. I don't think you can spot any obvious tells of the trick in the finished movie. And hey, here's Vince Clortho. You know, for being an extra-dimensional demon, he seems like kind of a sweet guy. I mean, he wants to release all slaves, for one thing. Again, I'm really impressed with all of Rick Moranis' acting in this movie. He does so many fun, weird, but also charming things, even when he's possessed. The handsome cab driver is Danny Stone, by the way. He was a comedian and didn't get to do too much in the way of acting. He passed away in 2015. It's a pretty quick cut to then dropping Lewis off at the firehouse. I love it that Egon has a machine that can give an image of the thing possessing someone. So, he's basically got a TV set up that shows someone's soul, right? That's amazing right there. Aw, and Vince Clortho is so amicable, so nice. Do you want some coffee? Well, first let me understand what it is, then sure. He's just sitting there, having a great time. Yeah, he's about to help bring about the end of the world, or maybe just human civilization, but Vince isn't that bad of a guy. I wonder if his friendly personality is just Vince Clortho, the terror dog visiting New York, or if his personality is influenced by Louis Tully's own demeanor. Vince drops a lot of world-building now. Rectification of the Voldrani came as a large and moving torb, then a slore. Shubs and Zools knew what it meant to be roasted in the depths of a slore that day, I can tell you. Just a refresher, all this kind of stuff is totally H.P. Lovecraft. Weird words, many of the monsters, all of them things that we have really no concept of their shape or physical form. So really, I think it's important to keep Lovecraft in mind for content like this in the movie. By the way, Okay, this is getting outside of the movie itself, but the way I've always read this, and how a lot of fans have as well, is that Gozer doesn't just come to Earth and mess around with Earth. In fact, while we know Shandor and ancient cults were aware of Gozer, the movie is unclear if Gozer has ever actually visited Earth before, whether it destroyed past civilizations or not. When Vince is talking about Torbs and Slores, I think he means Gozer went to planets and other realities and messed up their business. You know, Krypton maybe? Mondas? So maybe Torbs and Slores and Shubs might be creatures in other realities. Two other things I picked up on. One, I don't really like it how Vince refers to Gozer as he, 
All that's doing is setting up the gag later that Winston was under the assumption Gozer was a man because that's the pronoun he heard. I mean, he heard it from Egon, but Egon heard it from Vince here. I think Gozer should really be beyond physical form and gender, but also, what the hey, I mean, the terror dogs are definitely gendered. If I don't like it, I can argue Vince doesn't have a great grasp of concepts on Earth, like what coffee is. And this is a little thing I noticed. Vince refers to Zools, in the plural, all being roasted by Gozer too, which shows that maybe Gozer doesn't have total affection for its subjects. Anyway, the point to this, it's really there because for a while Zool was the name of the species of these creatures, then switched to Dana specifically. But just this one weird line, many shubs and Zools, I like to think that their dimension is all topsy-turvy, that even the concept of individuality isn't really as firm as it is on Earth. Yeah, Zool is inside of Dana Barrett right now, but maybe Zool is also a species? Many versions of Gozer's minions that go out and... have... sex? You get what I'm saying. Weird Lovecraft, unknowable stuff going on here. Check this out. When Janine hands to Egon Lewis's driver's license or whatever, Vince mimes her. This will be a running thing with Vince Clortho for the containment unit scene. Just a really fun choice by Rick Moranis that Vince doesn't even understand hand movements, so he studies and copies what others do. <laughs> and Janine wants to put her hands on Egon's chest and holds him close. This is also the only remaining line in the movie where Janine mentions that she's psychic. See, there was a whole lot of this content that just didn't stick around, like Ecto-1 being haunted. Speaking of Janine, later, after the mayor's office, there's a cutscene where Janine gives Egon her lucky coin from the 1964 World's Fair. When he says he doesn't believe in luck, she says, that's okay, she has another. <laughs> it's a good joke. And goes to show she's superstitious. But this whole aspect to her, psychic and a bit superstitious, goes away entirely for the cartoons and sequel, so it's a bit odd to still have this line hanging in here about being psychic. Also, lots of junk food around. Yeah, four guys living and working here, but we can assume most of this is Egon's. Peter calls the firehouse, and we've reached the most controversial scene in the movie. Peter has knocked Zool, or Dana, out with, he says, 300 cc's of Thorazine. The first thing to say about this, something plenty of fans have figured out now, this doesn't make any sense. Thorazine, or chloropromazine for its generic name, is an antipsychotic. I'm not overly familiar with it, of course, but I discovered that while it can cause sleepiness, there's other drugs that are way more effective as sleeping agents. Also, while it can be injected, you can also just take it as a pill, so I'm not sure why Peter went for cubic centimeters in a needle. By the way, 300 cc's is like a full cup of the stuff. Jeez Louise, Pete. And I looked it up, and adults should only take a maximum equivalent of 0.2 cc's. I know Peter is trying to knock Dana out, but if he actually did what he's saying, he dosed her with 1,500 times the daily dosage. I think this is really Dan, Harold, honestly the whole production not understanding what they're writing and talking about here. They heard hundreds of CCs on medical shows, not realizing this isn't right for a drug. If Peter did this and severely overdosed Dana, she can expect, yes, sleep, but also nausea, constipation, and not breathing, that's rather important. 
What probably happened in production is they were grasping around for a drug to knock out Zuli here, and someone suggested Thorazine without really knowing anything about it. At best, I suppose it could have been chosen because someone was aware it's an antipsychotic and not a straight sedative. So the line of thinking was Peter used it because being possessed is related to suffering from psychosis? I guess? Maybe? But anyway, the drug choice and injecting don't make sense. More troubling is the question of why Peter has this. Even as a kid, my rationale was that Peter must have left the apartment, gone to a pharmacy, and got this. That in itself is also a problem, because again, why would he get Thorazine? Furthermore, knowledgeable people have pointed out a psychologist cannot prescribe medication. Uh, my only counter to that is Dr. Venkman seems like the sort of shady doctor who would get his own prescription pad, maybe confusing someone on the difference between a psychologist and a psychiatrist who actually can prescribe. Another explanation is that he had it on him for some reason, which is awful to think about, suggesting that Peter would drug Dana. I don't think that's the intention at all, especially considering he does rebuff Zool slash Dana in the film. The final possibility that fans have suggested is that Dana was prescribed it perhaps after witnessing the tripped-out dimension and monster in her fridge. That almost works, but it's weird that it's injected when she could have been prescribed it orally. In all honesty, this line just sticks out as the people involved not grasping what they're writing about. People have asked Ivan Reitman about this, and he's never really given a satisfactory answer. Was it at Ghostbusters Fan Fest in 2019, where he said this was a joke that just didn't really work out? Anyway, I think none of us have a great resolution to this. My most charitable read on this is that Peter has a prescription pad for his own use, but is also an idiot and doesn't even know what Thorazine is effective for. And I sure hope he means he gave her three cc's of Thorazine, which is still an overdose, but way better than 300. Before we leave the bedroom, two things. Does anyone know who's in that photograph next to Dana's bed? I'd like to know if that's a relative of someone in the movie. And here's a hyper-specific detail. Let's jump to the very end of the movie, with the credits and Ray Parker Jr. rocking out. Dana and Peter come out in front of the crowd, just a little bit marshmallowed, and they kiss. Ivan and company realized, oh, we need to consider what Dana will be wearing in this final scene. They picked this out. What is it, a jacket? A robe? I can't really tell. It's not quite a floral print either. Man, I never really thought about this garment before, but it's kind of weird and looks more like a pattern you'd see on a couch. Anyway, they picked out that outfit in New York. Here, this is what you're wearing at the end of the movie. Well, fortunately, they put thought into this. Here, in the scene with Peter on the telephone, you can see they placed that garment, that weird garment I apparently have a problem with, on Dana's floor. I might not like it, but that's a great attention to detail. It's next to the phone.
we're off to see what Winston and Ray are up to. I've talked about it enough, but this would have fit in with the deleted Fort Detmering scenes, with Ray and the... Ugh, lady ghost there. By the way, they're driving back to the firehouse here, because they'll be driving into Manhattan in a second. Listen to that music startup. It's the Yamaha DX7 again. You know, the older I get, the more I like Winston's attitude. I love Jesus' style. It might be a cop-out, not saying what religion or denomination you follow. But you know, healing the sick, telling the rich to share their wealth, accepting people society have shunned. Yeah, I love Jesus' style too. It's a good general attitude to have. I went into this on a previous podcast, but Ray is actually quoting Revelation 6, verse 12. Winston also adds in seas boiling, which isn't in the Bible. My belief is that Dan Aykroyd likes to drop facts or references, but twists them for various reasons. I really like this scene. It's only here, and the city hall scene, where the movie touches on the religious implications at all. And it is just implied. They don't dwell on this stuff, which is great. Maybe the Bible, and maybe a lot of religions, had some access to an understanding of what's going on in the universe, and now the Ghostbusters are confronting the negative aspects to that. We also find out that the Shandor building has magnesium and tungsten inside it, and Ray is going to mention selenium later in the jail scene. So there you go, everybody. If for some reason you want to attract otherworldly gods, maybe you can do it with magnesium, tungsten, and selenium. A good home science project. There's a cool shot of Ecto-1 driving over the Manhattan Bridge. Finished in 1912, by the way, since I've been talking about architecture so much in this movie. And it makes sense they'd be driving on it. From Manhattan Bridge and driving on Canal Street, it would almost be a straight shot driving back to the firehouse. This is also one of the few times in the movie where you really get a look at the World Trade Towers. Cut to the morning, and Peter Budding with Walter Peck has come back to bite the Ghostbusters. I love Janine's little bit here. I've seen TV. You need a warrant or a writ or something. That's a good observation that a lot of us would only know about these things from cop shows. I have no idea if Walter Peck listing off the details of his warrant are correct, but they sure sound good. Chattels is a fun word. I wonder why Egon had Vince down in the basement. Honestly, to be present for this scene, really. Seems kind of dangerous keeping other people near the containment unit, as we'll soon see. The police captain here is retired cop Joe Cirillo. Being a former policeman was really his entrance into the film industry. Born in the Bronx, he looked and sounded like a New York cop, because, you know, he was. He could also serve as a technical advisor on TV and movie productions. Oh, but he started out as an extra in a great film, The Godfather. I believe Joe Cirillo's somewhere in the first half hour of the film, at the wedding reception. I actually scanned hard for him, but for the life of me, I couldn't spot him in The Godfather. Well, anyway, after that, Joe Cirillo found his calling as a police advisor on Hollywood Productions. That's what he did for the cop show Kojak, starring Telly Savalas, baby. Kojak, by the way, was a Universal TV production, one of many that came from Frank Price's time there. Larry Dilg, I hope I'm saying his name right, Larry Dilg plays the con Edison worker. He's another New York resident, and he seems to have done very few movies. I believe Ghostbusters here is his final film role. But there's something the internet isn't telling me about him. He acted in Amherst College and performed in Jim Steinman's first musical. I'm wondering if Dilg has done avant-garde theater work, but it's really hard to tell online. 
Frankly, Larry Dilg's wife, Mimi Kennedy, will be more familiar to most audiences. Mimi Kennedy shows up in a lot of things. She's played Dharma's mom in the TV series Dharma and Greg, and she was an Aaron Brockovich. I mentioned this last episode, but apart from the main cast, there are very few actors who filmed in both New York and Los Angeles. Along with the librarian, Alice Drummond, the only other non-main cast they did this with are Joe Cirillo and Larry Dilg here. Watch Rick Moranis in the basement. Vince Clortho is such a happy, clueless sort of demon. He copies Egon and Walter Peck's finger-pointing, and when Egon holds his arms wide to block the power, Vince is just inspecting Egon's arm and copying his hand. Speaking of the power down there, I wonder what the electric situation is like on the containment unit. Are they just using power from the city? Presumably they have a generator for blackouts too, but I don't see a generator down there. The production is kind of cheating, because you see those panels over there and think, oh yeah, this thing has a lot of amps running through it. But you don't actually consider where the power is coming from, how it's generated. But Walter Peck is about to have things shut down. There's an argument to be had for the rest of the Walter Peck scenes. Was Peck right or wrong to do this? Here's the thing. The Ghostbusters definitely should not have been storing ghosts in their basement, in the middle of New York. Okay, Dangerous ghosts need to be removed, but you shouldn't store nuclear waste, or explosives, in the middle of a city, and neither should you be locking up hundreds of ghosts into what's essentially a bomb. Ghostbusters fans will be familiar with this. In Dan Aykroyd's earlier drafts, the Ghostbusters would have had their containment unit outside the city, in an old gas station in a rural part of New Jersey. That would have at least been more responsible. I can see why they moved it to the basement of the firehouse, though. You don't need yet another location. Plus, for narrative expedience, you can just have Peck march back into their place of business. All the guys will be converging there soon. Plus, you can have the Keymaster present to wander off through Manhattan and find the Gatekeeper. But the last thing on this, what was Egon and Ray's plan with the containment unit long term? They're storing ghosts. Did they just think that to keep people safe, they'd need to keep it running indefinitely? Did they have a plan for 40 years on? or a hundred years on, after they've died? Huh. Ghostbusters Afterlife might have an answer to this question. But anyway, anyway, both here in the movie, even in real Ghostbusters, you see a flaw in what they're doing long term. They end up capturing multiple dangerous ghosts, so you'd better hope they have an idea of what they'll do years and years down the line. But to the scene, Egon mimes an explosion. I've been noticing this, I think Egon miming to Peter is a character trait in the movie. He slowly shakes his head in the realtor scene. There's him flashing numbers at the hotel. Really digging into the movie recently, I don't think these are just isolated bits. I think it's a running trait that Egon mimes where other characters don't really do that. It's a fun thing. They switch it off. Larry Dilg says, Oh shit. You know, if you think this thing is about to blow up, Maybe consider turning the power back on really fast? Maybe that wouldn't have stopped the explosion, but it wouldn't hurt to try. And Vince is so happy through all of this, just having a great time while everyone else is fearing for their lives. Egon also could have been more aware and made sure he had Vince when they ran upstairs. There's white light coming from the wall, and then from the back of the firehouse. Again, I think they're getting ideas from Poltergeist. The Ecto-1 rolls up when it's already too late. Hey! Who's that on the far left of the wooden police barriers? Why, porn star Ron Jeremy. 
Yeah, Ron Jeremy is in this crowd. He had already starred in porn by this point. Oh no. It turns out that Ron Jeremy is probably awful, and in 2020 he's been charged with sexually assaulting a lot of people. Sorry to shatter your perception of... Ron Jeremy. Ray jumps on over, and he's been having trouble with his damned yellow hose too. They should get rid of those things. You can tell they're doing ADR for a lot of these scenes with the crowds around. There's a fire truck back there. I wonder if it's THE truck from Hook and Ladder number 8. It probably is. If we're going to get nitpicky, and no, we're never nitpicky here, are we? But the US doesn't have an Environmental Protection Act like Peck says. He probably meant the Environmental Policy Act of 1970. He's still overreaching. In my limited reading of this wide-ranging act, it doesn't cover criminal sanctions. That means you can't be arrested for violating the act, but the Ghostbusters could be sued by the federal government. Yeah, yeah, I'm being nitpicky here. An explosion occurred at their business, so why not haul them away and see if you could charge them for that? When you see a shot of all the ghosts spewing out right after Egon charges at Walter Peck, get a load of that building with the faded ad. It's for Stay Puff Marshmallows. Ha. Yeah, the only two little setups to Mr. Stay Puff in the movie are Dana's groceries and the advertisement there. I still wish they could have fit in a commercial on Dana's TV. New York probably doesn't have a lot of these old, faded advertisements anymore, does it? Certainly not in Manhattan, or anywhere else that's been renovated with multi-million dollar properties. I live in a small city, and we still have some old ads like this on brick buildings, for Opeachy gum and 7-Up ads from the 60s. I kind of like seeing them around. Magic by Mick Smiley starts playing, which I've mentioned before as a real standout, and it connects to the other music in the film by using synthesizers. I like it how we imagine the Ghostbusters catching dozens, hundreds of unique ghosts, and now the movie has to go, eh, they're all pinkish lights now. I'm not complaining. There's no way, especially given the time constraints, to show hundreds of unique creatures in the shots of the city. Come to think of it, it's interesting to point out that there are fewer ghosts in the movie than you probably think there are. They talk about being run off their feet, but guess how many unique beings are in the movie? I count nine, and that's counting Gozer and the Marshmallow Man as separate things. I like the blue subway ghost. The actors in front do a good job escaping, though that guy selling the papers is super slow and eventually gets away. But if you really want to laugh, check out some people in the background. There's a guy just staring, watching the actors run, and when they're done, he just walks away, disinterested. We can tell what happened, 
the people in the foreground are actually extras, but they couldn't just shut down the sidewalk or anything, so all the people in the background are just New Yorkers looking on. The zombie taxi driver was a puppet by Slimer's designer, Steve Johnson. This was very early in production, the first ghost or monster, I believe. When the taxi peels away, there's a driver wearing a mask of the zombie, though you can hardly see anything. I don't think it would be a problem regardless. Slimer's back. Having him show up again is nice, and I think showing him really be a glutton again cemented him as a figure they'd use in the cartoon. When Deke did a short pilot, Slimer was eating hot dogs. It bears mentioning, but the Slimer puppet wasn't in that hot dog cart. They just used a green light and added Slimer in later, just like the scenes at the hotel. And hey everyone, Slimer could drink some delicious Sprite and Coca-Cola when he's done with those hot dogs. Mmm, Coke products. When Dana's apartment wall blows up, that's really Sigourney Weaver standing there, which I think they probably shouldn't have cut away as it was happening. They caught a good moment of Rick Moranis stumbling around looking up, and the pigeons just happened to fly up, like something disturbed them. It kind of looks like there's a crowd behind Moranis there, but they're not looking at him or the camera, so if they are a crowd, they're assembled for something else. I can't tell what's going on. The Ghostbusters are hauled off to jail. This was a real decommissioned jail cell in the city, and one of the most unpleasant shoots in the whole production. It was small and cold. But for the scene itself, it's a good reminder of how out there the three scientists seem. With Winston and the other guys around, we get a reminder of how crazy this all is. By the way, girders with cores of pure selenium. That sounds really difficult, actually, especially for a skyscraper. Selenium isn't a metal, so putting it in the core of your girder would weaken the whole thing. Maybe Ray means just the temple incorporates selenium, which I guess would be feasible, if still difficult to manufacture. I looked it up, and unless you're getting some selenium through certain foods, and humans need some selenium, by the way, but if you want large industrial levels of selenium, the best way to get it is by refining other materials, especially coal and copper. You can do things with selenium. It used to be important for photography, but has become less and less relevant. But something I discovered is I don't believe any company on earth has ever mined selenium. You mine for coal or copper, and if you're smart and environmentally friendly, you sell the selenium byproduct you've created. In fact, mining operations can create so much extra selenium, many places have just dumped it into the ecosystem which really sucks because an excess of selenium causes birth defects in animals. I know I said I wouldn't talk too much about future Ghostbusters movies, but this fact about selenium, that nobody else has ever mined it, may have some bearing on Ghostbusters Afterlife. Okay, enough nitty-gritty. Ray and Egon talk about how weird the Shandor building is. It's spook central. The building being a gateway to another realm, and Ivo Shandor being this mad scientist and cultist starting in 1920, I keep banging on this drum, but really, people, if you learn any one thing from me, it's that the actual plot of Ghostbusters takes a lot from H.P. Lovecraft's stories. The 1920s were even the time Lovecraft was really writing a lot of stories like Ghostbusters. Only, you know, he was super serious about his stories. So be good, for goodness sake. Peter makes it sound like a hymn, but he's really just singing a bit from Santa Claus is Coming to Town, right? That right there is such a good moment but I think it's based on Bill Murray needing to do something, and that extra was standing right behind him, and Bill knew he could startle him. 
Going back to Meatballs, when Bill sings a song while canoeing to amuse himself, we know Bill loves moments like this, even though he's really just confusing Santa with gods here, but eh, it's fine. And everyone, making a special appearance in Ghostbusters, please give it up for Reginald Vell Johnson. And this was only his second movie ever, and in 88 he'd be playing Sergeant Powell in Die Hard. And from 1989 to 98, he played Officer Carl Winslow on Family Matters. Family Matters, originally a Lorimar production, by the way. But Vel Johnson, I don't know why people kept casting him as police officers. I don't feel like I need to talk about Mr. Vel Johnson's career. You're welcome to go look him up yourself. Oh yeah, but real quick, Die Hard in 88 features Vel Johnson, William Atherton, and German actor Norbert Grupp, a.k.a. Wilhelm von Homburg, a.k.a. Vigo in Ghostbusters 2. That's three notable Ghostbusters actors all in Die Hard. And ah, true love at last. The Keymaster has found the Gatekeeper. Hey, do you think there's any innuendo to those names? <clears throat> and finally, Dana had shut her door on Lewis before. He'd been locked out of his apartment several times, not to mention locked out of Tavern on the Green. But now as the Keymaster, all locks are open to him. Sigourney Weaver being so tall really makes it work when she grabs to kiss Moranis. The Ghostbusters really are escorted to the steps of City Hall. I pointed this out at the fire hall, but one of the city hall's architects, John McComb, also designed St. John's Chapel, a church that used to be a block north of Hook and Ladder Number 8. I've talked about shooting locations being close to each other, and you might not have realized, Hook and Ladder 8 is really close to City Hall, like a 15-minute walk away. That must have been helpful for production. Moving to inside City Hall, this wasn't a set. They really did film inside an office at City Hall, just not the mayor's. I love the energy in here, especially coming off of William Atherton, lunging at Venkman. Keep in mind, he hadn't filmed any of his interior firehouse scenes with the Ghostbusters yet, so this right here, with him needing to play so angry at Venkman, is either his first or second scene filmed. And he gets called Dickless. That right there, folks. They set up his name being Peck. You know, something small like a pinch. But you also need to know Pecker is a penis. This whole movie giving him the name Walter Peck just so they can call him Dickless now. It's fun, and another good remainder from the cruder Animal House style of comedy. In the TV edit of the film, Ray calls Peck Wally Wick here. I remember hearing that and always had to think about it. Was Ray comparing Peck to a cartoon character I didn't know about? But no, it's the same joke. Walter so Wally, and Wick as in something short. So I really think even in the TV edit, he's making a convoluted joke about Peck being a... Peck. Hey, the map. The walls in the 53rd Precinct were bleeding. Hey, there is no 53rd Precinct in New York. What's the deal? Yeah, on top of being a good line, it's also a gag. The 53rd Precinct didn't exist in the 80s, or today. It was the fictional precinct for the 60s show... Car 54, where are you? 
There's a holdup in the Bronx, Brooklyn's broken out in fights. There's a traffic jam in Harlem that's backed up to Jackson Heights. There's a scout troop short a child, cruise ships do an idle wild. Car 54, where are you? Hey everyone, it's a shared universe. I know how much you nerds love shared universes. I'm sure the crossover will come someday. By the way, Car 54, Where Are You? actually filmed in the Bronx. Yeah. Mayor Lenny is played by David Margulies. I hope I'm saying his name right. Yet another New York actor. He was in your Laws and Orders. He was on Broadway. Along with Mayor Lenny in Ghostbusters, probably his other most famous role is Tony Soprano's lawyer in The Sopranos. I'll tell you a story about David Margulies. In the book, Who is Michael Ovitz? Ovitz says Margulies wasn't represented by him, but by a small acting agency, probably just one guy. Ghostbusters became this huge hit, and the agent rang up Ovitz to see if there was any way Margulies could have a tiny cut of the movie. Now, I get it, this wasn't going to happen. Even if there is enough money to go around, you don't get a better deal after the fact, just because. So Ovitz told this agent off over the phone. By the way, Mike Ovitz uses this story as a more endearing example of himself, that he was immediately honest when other agents would have lied, pretended to call Columbia, and then call back the next day to lie and say someone else said no. David Magulis passed away in 2016. Back to the story and the office now. When Mayor Lenny gets up, I think that's a bust of President Teddy Roosevelt behind him. Again, this was someone's office, so apart from the map of New York, I don't think the production had to decorate this room much. But get this, at the front of the mayor's desk, spot the placard that reads, Be Not Afraid. Ha! Huh? A bit on the nose, considering the topic of discussion will partly be religious. Tom McDermott plays the Archbishop, Mike. He's another New York actor, of course, and maybe my favorite actor who isn't a part of the main cast. McDermott started on Broadway in 1942 to give you an idea of his lengthy career. Also, I just want to mention this because I love Shakespeare. In 1982, so a year before filming this, McDermott was performing as King Duncan in Macbeth on Broadway. Playing the Archbishop here jumps out as the most notable role he had in film that I can see. He passed away in 1996. When Lenny and the Archbishop are standing together, look at which Ghostbusters are behind them. Bill Murray and Dan Aykroyd, the two Catholic boys. I'm sure that's not a coincidence. Venkman is also the one to look impressed, which I like. And speaking of these guys, Bill Murray was the one who recommended that the mayor should call the archbishop by his first name, Mike. That bit of familiarity, then the cheek slap, it adds a lot to the relationship of these two guys. They might have even come up in the city together. Hey, something to notice about this scene. No women at all in City Hall. I've been sort of ignoring it for most of this movie, and Ivan Reitman's career, but it bears repeating that this is largely a boys' club. Ivan and friends have been improving over the years, giving Dana and Janine some personality in this movie, but still. Let's stop everything before I get to the meat of this scene. Ivan Reitman calls this his favorite scene in the movie, and I agree with him. This is the best. How are you, Lenny? You're looking good, Mike. We're in a real fix here. What do you think I should do? Lenny, officially, the church will not take any position on the religious implications of these uh, phenomena. Hmm. Personally, Lenny, I think it's a sign from God. But don't quote me on that. 
No, I think that's the smart move, Mike. Well, I'm not going to call a press conference and tell everyone to start praying. Oh. <clears throat> uh, I'm uh, Winston Zettimore, Yana. But I've only been with the company for a couple of weeks. But I got to tell you, these things are real. Since I joined these men, I have seen shit that'll turn you white. Well, you could believe, Mr. Pecker. My name is Peck. Or you could accept the fact that this city is headed for a disaster of biblical proportion. What do you mean, biblical? What he means is Old Testament, Mr. Yes. Mayor. Real wrath of God type stuff. Exactly. Fire and brimstone coming down from the skies. Rivers and seas boiling. Forty years of darkness, earthquakes, volcanoes. The dead rising from the grave. Human sacrifice, dogs and cats living together. Mass hysteria. Enough, I get the point. What if you're wrong? If I'm wrong, nothing happens. We go to jail, peacefully, quietly. We'll enjoy it. But if I'm right, and we can stop this thing, Lenny, you will have saved the lives of millions of registered voters. I don't believe you're seriously considering listening to these men. Get him out of here. Bye. I'll fix you, Venkman. I'm going to fix you. I'm going to get you a nice fruit basket. I'm going to miss him. All right. We got work to do. Now, what do you need from me? For all these podcast episodes, I've really been speaking about the mechanics of this movie. The business side of it, filming, how Ghostbusters fits into all these actors' careers. It's fun and nerdy, but I've largely been ignoring the spirit of the film or what I take away from it. Here's why I like Ghostbusters, why I think it's such a fun concept. The Ghostbusters have uncovered probably the greatest secret ever. They've proven there's life after death, of a sort, and while they haven't proven there are other dimensions quite yet, they're getting there. They hold answers to some of the greatest questions mankind has asked for all of human history, and what do they do? Not tell other scientists about it, or religions, or the press, nope, they went into business and became minor celebrities. This fantastic secret revealed, and they try to make money. And does their information, does the apocalypse in New York fundamentally alter human society? No. And why should it? So when Mike says, officially, the church will not take any position on the religious implications on these phenomena. Not only is it funny, I think that's honestly what would happen in a situation like this. Yeah, new religions and cults are created, but do new revelations ever make old ways of thinking just stop? An angel could show up in Times Square, announcing an important news update from God Almighty, and it'll be big news, but do you think that will fundamentally change how people go about their daily lives? I don't think so. Not for most people. Eh, that happened. An angel. And this right here is the biggest joke of Ghostbusters. Ghosts exist. Demons and otherworldly gods exist. The apocalypse is nigh. But is New York going to behave all that differently? Nah. There's the reality of the situation they're in. And then there's the politics of the situation. The reality is, Mike thinks this is a sign from God. But he's still politicking. He's still acting as if his stance, and the church's stance, matters in the face of impending doom. 
and Mayor Lenny is too. He should be down on his knees praying. He should be doing everything and anything to save the city. But he's a politician first. We're all ourselves first. Who we are is often defined by our jobs and our roles in society. Sometimes we don't panic. We fall back on what we're familiar with and with how a system works. And after all the Ghostbusters describe how dire the situation is, Peter honks in with cats and dogs living together, mass hysteria. Peter is the one who understands the situation. Not the Gozer situation. I mean the situation in that room. There are rules people like to follow. A bureaucracy that always says no to a small team like the Ghostbusters. They say no to an upstart like Tripper Harrison at a camp with rules. They say no to wise guys like John Winger in the army. In comes Bill Murray, the comedic hero, who knows that following the rules, the same as everybody else, isn't going to save the day. What's going to save the day is a team of individuals who don't care about bureaucracy. They figured out the situation. They know what to do when society tried to ignore ghosts. And to top it all off, Peter makes an appeal to authority that's win-win. Peter Venkman isn't going to upset the bureaucracy he hates, but he does understand how to cut through it and to appeal to the politician in the room. That's the comedy of Ghostbusters, and the comedy of Ivan Reitman and Dan Aykroyd and Harold Ramis and Bill Murray. They see what's dumb in society and they mock it, cut through it, and they think, wrongly sometimes, but they have to believe that they can navigate the world better as free thinkers than as people obeying a system. In 2017, Patrick Willems created a YouTube video where he argued that Ghostbusters is a film about nothing. It's worth checking out. Try googling Patrick Willems and Ghostbusters. He makes salient arguments, including that the characters don't have much in the way of arcs. But I think he, and his film studies professor, missed the theme of Ghostbusters. The individual, or small group, can be right when the rest of society is wrong. That's it. That's the foundation of National Lampoon, that the upstarts writing and performing there were right, while the rest of America was wrong. That's the underlying foundation of Saturday Night Live. That's the theme of Tripper Harrison being cool and right in Meatballs. It's, improbably, what's going on in Stripes, with John Winger and Russell Ziski outwitting the U.S. and Soviet armies. We're a small group of freethinkers. We know what's going on. The rest of society, and especially people in power, do not. And here it's in Ghostbusters, and Venkman makes the appeal to the mayor. My favorite scene, and Ivan Reitman's favorite as well. Just to finish up my thesis on the movie, and on Reitman and Powell's comedy in general, I will say this for people who find Ghostbusters hard to dissect. It's an off-kilter movie. In a tighter, or more traditional film, the supernatural threat would also be the bureaucratic threat they're facing. But it's not. Walter Peck doesn't really connect to the supernatural threat of Gozer. The scene here is where Venkman makes the case for them being right. Then you need more jokes, more danger, and you need to get to the end of the film where they prove they're right. So this is the point of the movie, but proving that point in the climax is going to take a little bit longer. It's not traditional. It's not Luke Skywalker trusting in himself and the Force to blow up the Death Star. It's not Sherlock Holmes proving he's had the answers all along. For traditional movies, making the point about the theme happens all in one go, usually at the climax. Here in Ghostbusters, Venkman needs to make his case that they're the ones to save the world, 
then you need to wait a bit for that to be fulfilled. It's just staggered is all. Get Peck out of here. We're on our way to the end, folks. I never thought about this until now, but what do you need from me than cutting to the army jumping in trucks is a joke. It's supposed to be funny that the Ghostbusters now have law enforcement on their side, that suddenly they have more than enough backup after Lenny speaks that line. There's a deleted scene outside where the Ghostbusters get ready, talking with the mayor about the whys and wherefores of Armageddon, and it's really unnecessary. Janine also shows up, gives Egon her lucky 1964 World's Fair coin, with the gag that it's okay if anything happens, she has a second lucky coin at home. The Ghostbusters, the army, and the city of New York get moving. The song playing is Saving the Day by the Alessi Brothers. Again, just a reminder, the misfit Ghostbusters now have society's systems, its bureaucracy, and forces on their side after appealing to them. This isn't just neat to look at, it's following up on Peter having successfully made his case. And they roll up to the Shandor building, with a big crowd gathered. This is great. Keep in mind that when filming, they hadn't done the interior firehouse scenes yet, the library stacks or Slimer bust, a lot of things. But I think that showing up here, having a crowd in New York shouting for you, just happy to be seeing some Saturday Night Live actors, this must have been energizing for the actors and indeed the whole production staff. They still needed to film a lot in LA, but here the guys got to play a bit in front of an audience like how they're familiar with. Speaking of the crowd shouting, Joe Medjuk uses this scene as his example. He found the nearest payphone, called someone at Columbia Pictures, Frank Price was gone by this point, but he called somebody, and he said, listen to this crowd, and they're all chanting, Ghostbusters, Ghostbusters. Joe Medjuk said, get us this name. So it sounds like they didn't try to get the crowd to chant a different title. There's another reason I think Bill Murray especially loved this. In 2018, Bill Murray interviewed his pal, Mike Ovitz, on the release of the book, Who is Michael Ovitz? Murray started the evening by talking about how he used to live at the YMCA on 63rd Street, just off of Central Park West. Check that out on a map. When Bill Murray was starting out in New York, he lived at a YMCA two blocks away from this building. This was his old neighborhood. You hear stories of Bill Murray being the king, the mayor of New York. Everybody loved him. Well, he used to live here, and now he's in a movie and a crowd of people are cheering him on. You know that's gotta be fun. You hear stories during the time how he'd wander off from filming. Some guy wants to show him his record collection. This all makes sense. But not everybody was happy. At some point filming this, science fiction author Isaac Asimov came over. Dan Aykroyd was excited. Oh, hey, Mr. Asimov, I'm a big fan of yours. Is this all yours? Uh, yeah, we're filming a movie. This is terrible. You're really inconveniencing people. You're backing up traffic everywhere. And then Isaac Asimov walks off. Ha. But you know, he wasn't wrong. The Ghostbusters taking up the street here really was an inconvenience. They caused such a traffic jam, it affected other streets. It just ballooned and ballooned and affected much of Manhattan. I'm not going to go through shot by shot and talk about which scenes are actually in New York and which ones are a set they recreated in L.A., you know, they did a good job. It's edited together so well, I can't tell most of the time that this scene is cut together from a real and fake location. Obviously, when there's an earthquake with hydraulics, that's actually a set. They did actually set up some rubble in New York, though, because you need that there. 
I was actually surprised they really did get a cop car diagonal nose down on the street in New York. Except it's not sunk into the ground at all. There, it's just rubble entirely above ground, and they trick the audience. It's only on the L.A. stage that the ground cracked and moved, and the cop car really is partially under that fake road. Check out the signs held by the people outside the Holy Trinity Lutheran Church. Wow, it seems almost as if those repent signs were printed out and weren't handmade at all. It's almost like a movie production was just handing those signs out. Oh, also there, a very tall young man in a suit, he starts jumping. That's Eldo Ray Estes. He acted in a few other things, but he's really in the biz as a makeup artist. He's worked on Boardwalk Empire, Blue Bloods, Orange is the New Black, lots of stuff. Ha, and then when Ecto-1 rolls up, Estes has warped to the other side with the crowd. He shouts, Ghostbusters, all right! The ground shakes. The Ghostbusters are swallowed up, but they're all right. You know, this seems to suggest that maybe malevolent forces are aware the Ghostbusters are a threat. If that's true, you'd think hundreds of ghosts would descend on the Busters, preventing them from climbing up to the temple. You know, like the video game of the movie. Ugh, that thing. But that doesn't happen. Maybe the earthquake was just totally random that it nearly killed the Ghostbusters. Oh well. The coming evil of Gozer also darkens the sky. I think this is another case of some scenes dictating what will happen in the plot. See, the movie production wants to fight Gozer at nighttime. It'll be dramatic, and it'll just be better looking that way, and easier to hide the matte lines and make the proton streams and lightning bolts look better too. Now that said, I think something was making it extra difficult for them to do all the crowd scenes at night. Maybe the city was telling them they couldn't just block the road for hours and hours at night. Whatever the exact reason, they had this daytime crowd footage, but they really, really wanted the temple scene to be in the dark. So evil clouds will form and darken the sky, just like Winston and Ray spoke about from Revelations. There will be a few moments of the crowd in nighttime too, but I'm suggesting they maybe had to wrap up at a certain hour. Hey, speaking of those clouds, not to mention on the poster and in Dana's fridge, I haven't mentioned how those effects were done. You get a big aquarium tank and partially fill it with salt water. You then layer a waterproof barrier over top of the salt water. Even a tarp or big garbage bag will do the trick. Then fill up the rest of the tank with fresh water. After giving both layers of water time to rest, you carefully slide the barrier out of the tank. If you haven't disturbed either layer too much, the fresh and salt water layers will mostly be separated from each other, though your naked eye won't be able to perceive this. All you need to do then is set up cameras wherever you need them, especially underneath if you're going to pretend your tank has clouds, and then you inject a strong paint into the fresh water. It'll look dramatic, but the paint swirling around also won't cross into the saltwater layer beneath. You can create effects that look like space clouds, or you can create dramatic clouds for here on Earth. This is what we're seeing with clouds form around the tower in Ghostbusters, as well as in Gozer's dimension. If you want to see this to get a better understanding of what I'm talking about, Google Cloud Tank Effect. 
I think fewer and fewer movies use this, but it's an old Hollywood trick. It's all the dramatic clouds in Ten Commandments. It's in Close Encounters of the Third Kind, a lot of the Star Trek movies. It's used in practically every sky or space scene in Flash Gordon, so it's all over movies. But back to the funny. After the Save in the Day music, and the crowds cheering, and the Ghostbusters put their hands together and go inside, we immediately cut to them struggling up the stairs. See, that's great. If we were watching Batman or James Bond, you'd see the hero dramatically rushing up to save the day. Since this is a comedy, we get the more realistic reaction of them out of breath, lugging those proton packs. We're getting a good comedic dichotomy now of the Ghostbusters rising to the challenge and being the heroes of New York, but they're still these schlubs we've been watching for the whole movie. Hey, important information everybody, this stairwell scene is actually at the Biltmore Hotel in LA. So they filmed the Slimer scenes, but then they just used the stairs for this. That's neat. I'm pretty sure that's a matte painting going up to make the stairwell appear taller. The gatekeeper and keymaster wake up, and I think both Weaver and Moranis do a great job selling this. She's playing sexy and dangerous, showing off her legs, and he's just goofily gets up while smiling. In 2019, a video was uploaded online, and I'm sorry, I can't find it now, but it was behind-the-scenes footage of Ivan Reitman and the crew, and they're talking to Sigourney Weaver and Rick Moranis up on this altar. Moranis breaks into Bob McKenzie and says his brother Doug is off filming for Lorne Michaels, eh? That's fun. It also gives an interesting sense of time. Doug McKenzie's actor, so Dave Thomas, was off filming the next show for Lorne Michaels. It only lasted nine episodes, and it was Michael's attempt at a show when he wasn't in charge of Saturday Night Live. It wasn't a success, and by the time Ghostbusters debuted, the next show was already off the air. Still, interesting to get a sense of time. The Ghostbusters get up. See, they still have jokes, even if they're just being weird. The world is ending, they're all tired, the floor is trashed, but Egon still stops to say, Art Deco, very nice. Again, it's less a joke than the guys just doing odd things, but it works so well. As the guys go into Dana's apartment, we see a big wheel tricycle in the hallway. It could be nothing, but you know me, always wanting to draw connections. I can't help but think some clever prop person included that big wheel in there because Danny was riding one around in The Shining. You know, like the exorcist possession scene. Here's just a visual cue to another haunted movie. Maybe. The busters enter Dana's apartment. I guess the idea is that the staircase was always hidden behind the fridge, which might explain why the fridge seemed to be the most haunted thing in Dana's apartment. It was closest to the temple upstairs. Speaking of which, when they cut to the exterior with the matte painting, I can't really understand the relation from Dana's apartment to the temple. It looks like there are six or seven more stories, all presumably with people living in them, before you reach the temple. You'd think Dana and Lewis would be, like, living right underneath the temple. Oh well, I think Boss Films was working with what they had. Speaking of Boss Films, that exterior is a rather impressive shot. You don't just see the destruction, you see the Ghostbusters move in Dana's destroyed apartment. But look to the bottom right, you can see some people on a rooftop. Boss Films people have said that they snuck themselves in over there. And at the very last moment, you can spot Lewis and Dana at the top of the building. It's such a small detail, literally, but you can actually see them up there. And just before we go for the final confrontation, 
about the building not making sense. With staircases behind fridges that might go up seven floors, have you noticed the actual worst problem in Dana and Lewis's apartments? What's missing in them? What have we not seen? There are no washrooms. And we've seen everything in there. And there's no place for washrooms. Go back and check all the scenes. I'm not kidding. They can't even be hiding anywhere. It's such a cheat by John DeCure and his team, you probably never noticed before. Hey, I think we've all just figured out how Dana and Lewis are able to afford living in this building. They don't have washrooms. Yes, I know I'm Canadian. I say washroom. The ritual complete... Zool and Vince Clortho send purple lightning to the door, and they both transform back into monsters. I mentioned this already, but if you wonder about the logic in this, why did they need to possess humans at all if they're just going to change back into monsters? See, the darkness kind of hides the mat lines on the stop-motion terror dogs. The stop-motion terror dogs look at their best now in the movie. They're clever when the humans transform too. One moment they're the actors, writhing from electricity, and there's a flash for each of them, and they're suddenly stop-motion creatures. Okay, she's a dog. We get a better look at the temple and the dimension beyond. Hey, when the terror dogs run up the crystal steps, check out the clouds inside the doors and outside. Using that water tank effect again, by the way. But it looks like the clouds are all unified. You know what I mean? It's like our dimension and Gozer's share the same sky. Huh. I wonder if that was an intentional choice or an accident. This was a huge set, and to light it up and the New York skyline, Columbia had to get most of the Burbank lot to power down. Listen to my little podcast on stage 16 on the Burbank lot for more about this very interesting building. We return now to the story. The pyramid back there is probably inspired by Masonic imagery. You know, a pyramid and an eyeball or ray of light on top. All you American listeners can look at the back of a $1 bill to see what I mean. I don't think the production really meant anything by this, other than, you know, they need something physical off in Gozer's realm. A crystal archway and a pyramid with light works. Speaking of needing something physical, that goes for Gozer as well. Yugoslavian model Slavica Jovan played the form of Gozer here. Again, I keep hammering this home... Gozer is kind of a Lovecraftian entity, and even as a kid, when I thought Gozer shapeshifts and is a stranger to our reality, I figured in the more science fiction and horror tradition, Gozer shouldn't even really have a body to begin with. But of course, this is a comedy. You need something to represent Gozer, and for the guys to blast, so why not an angular woman with a weird bubbly outfit? I love it that she even has heels. Gozer might be an out-of-towner, but she still has fashion sense for visiting New York. I say she when, again, in my mind, Gozer should be without gender. I get kind of annoyed when every so often, Ghostbusters material refers to Gozer as male. I get it, I get it. Sometimes that happens because Vince Clortho used male pronouns for Gozer, but I chalk that up to confusion and for the Ghostbusters to be surprised here. Speaking of Gozer's form, this idea is well known to fans. In an earlier draft, Gozer might have come out as Paul Rubens in a suit. You know, Pee Wee Herman. <laughs> Dan Aykroyd might have been thinking about this after Paul Rubens played a waiter in The Blues Brothers. Also, also, this was kind of a neat idea, because it would have been made clear that Gozer, in needing to choose a form, decided to look like Ivo Shandor. I think that's a neat idea, but I appreciate wanting viewers to know Gozer is this alien, otherworldly being, and Slavica Jovan in the outfit sells that idea more easily. 
Go get her, Ray. <laughs> it's fun. But a reminder from way back at the start of the movie, that's what Ray said about the librarian ghost. Get her. <laughs> Callbacks are fun. And Ray's strategy really makes for a fun joke. I'm going to represent New York as if that matters to you at all, otherworldly god. And could you kindly go to another dimension? Are you a god? No? Then die. I'm glad they gave the follow-up joke to Winston, because he needs a few great jokes in the film. In the Reunited Apart interview with Josh Gad in 2020, everyone agreed that when someone asks if you're a god, you say, yes! They remember this line coming from Harold Ramis, that he pitched it for Winston. Speaking of Winston, when he is thrown up onto the altar, it sure looks like he's moved by wires and not thrown by, you know, gravity. A small complaint, they're doing their best. A reminder here that the purplish lightning is by Terry Windle, and I think Gary Waller as well. They were both animating the purple lightning from the Emperor in Return of the Jedi the previous year. Of course they're doing the proton streams as well, but I just wanted to point out the similarities to their previous work. Alright, this chick is toast. Ha, a fun line. But also, the first time we know of anyone using toast like that to say someone is dead or finished. Watch Ray as they line up. He drops a ghost trap by the altar. I guess he was thinking they might trap Gozer, but I can see them not wanting to have that thing hanging off him for the rest of this sequence. This is a pretty good superhero moment. After dumpy piano music at times, the guys destroying a ballroom and not really knowing what they were doing, here the movie is just going to say, you know what, they are cool now, and they're capable. but their proton streams prove ineffective. Ray saying they neutronized it is a good bit of science babble here, almost certainly from Dan Aykroyd. Neutronization is a real effect, and I'm not going to describe all the ins and outs of it and look like a dummy. What I do know is that neutrons are subatomic particles without electric charges. What Ray is suggesting here is that protons and electrons must have fused together to turn Gozer effectively into nothingness or at least a being with no energy at all. Like I said, it's good science babble for the movie. I wonder why Egon has that little meter out and not his PKE. Probably so Harold Ramis didn't need to handle the bigger device throughout filming, frankly. Heh, <laughs> okay, I'm not trying to be mean, but the guys pretending there's an earthquake here is some of the most unconvincing physical acting. Harold Ramis scoots around in his boots, looking like he's doing dance moves or something. But hey, what are you gonna do? Rocks fall on the crowd below, including the police barriers, and bounce off harmlessly. I know, I know. I'm not trying to be mean. Look, we're just here going through the movie together. Gozer speaks menacingly to the Ghostbusters and puny humans below. Hey, I haven't said who does the Gozer voice. It's Patty Edwards. She's not famous, but she was in TV back in the 50s and 60s. But here's why you'll care about her. She's voiced cartoon characters you're familiar with. After Gozer here, in 1989, she played Flotsam and Jetsam, the eels, in The Little Mermaid. It's the same voice. Go listen to The Little Mermaid. Flotsam and Jetsam sound exactly like Gozer here. Ha! She's also one of the Fates, the shortest sister, in the Disney version of Hercules. Oh hey, and Batman fans. In Batman, the animated series, there's an episode called Eternal Youth. 
the one where Poison Ivy tries to take advantage of elderly people at a health spa. Patty Edwards plays Alfred's love interest in that episode. And she's the Silver Shamrock secretary in Halloween 3, and in Cheers and Murphy Brown, and in Star Trek The Next Generation, as a shape-shifting alien, oddly enough, in Star Trek. So she's acted in plenty of fun stuff. That's all Patty Edwards, who did this great sinister growl of a talk. She passed away in 1999. Seriously, The Little Mermaid is the most fun thing to go watch next, because Flotsam and Jetsam have Gozer's exact voice again. Poor sweet child. She has a very serious problem. If only there was something we could do. But there is something. <laughs> who, who are you? Don't be scared. We represent someone who can help you. Someone who can make all your dreams come true. Just imagine, you and your prince, together, forever. We're back to my Lovecraft content. Choose the form of the Destructor. Everyone comments on this. If Peter figures it out and says, if we think of J. Edgar Hoover, we get J. Edgar Hoover, you'd think Hoover would show up then, right? Oh well, they're cheating for the movie. Maybe none of the guys knew what J. Edgar Hoover looked like, and that's how they got away with it. There's another little linguistic joke here. The choice is made. Whoa, nobody choosed anything, right? It's nobody chose anything. I wonder if that was a deliberate ad-lib by Murray there, or just a funny mistake. I, I, I tried to think. Look! No, it can't be. What is it? It can't be. What did you do, Ray? Oh, shit. It's the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man. You don't see every day. I tried to think of the most harmless thing. Something I loved from my childhood. Something that could never, ever possibly destroy us. Mr. Stay Puft. Nice thinking, Ray. It's the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man. Originally, there were plans to see the Marshmallow Man rise out of the water, a la Godzilla, but that would be way more effort. Instead, eh, let's just cheat and say it materialized around a corner. It's smart. I love this story. Ivan likes test screenings of his movies with audiences. He wants to hear crowds laughing so he knows what he got right or wrong. Well, they had this test screening and said up front to the audience that a lot of the effects weren't done. I think they had the librarian ghost done. I'm not sure about Slimer. They get to this scene 
with the strained violins playing, and you see the head of the Marshmallow Man through those buildings. And nothing. Effect shot missing. But the audience lost it. What is this thing the Ghostbusters are seeing? It sounds like a great reaction. I wish I was there for that screening. This unfinished reel was probably destroyed. I mean, why keep it when you need more effects work done? But if I could have any deleted scene or alternate copy of a film, it would actually be this test version of Ghostbusters without the Marshmallow Man reveal and a lot of other effects missing. It sounds like the film still totally worked. Mother Puss Bucket? That's my favorite substitution for a swear. I love it. But let's talk about what we actually see. The friendly Marshmallow Man rounds the corner. And man, this being a nighttime scene, that effect works for me. When you see the crowds panicking, that looks like there's a giant smiling Marshmallow Man stomping towards us. The location there is Columbus Circle, five blocks south of the Shandor building, so the Marshmallow Man is walking north now. Let's talk about building that suit. From Ghostbusters, The Inside Story. Linda Frobos was a sculptor and makeup artist, and I think the first movie she worked on was Dune, which began production in 83, before Ghostbusters, but would release after, in December of 84. Anyway, Linda Frobos did the still suits, the desert costumes you see in that movie, and a person sculpting the foam for her was Billy Bryan. Linda Frobos was working on the Marshmallow Man and brought Billy Bryan in to work on the foam, and then he'd even wear the suit for most of the filming at Boss. It sounds like Bryan was the one who figured out exactly what the Marshmallow Man should be made from. They'd try one thing, and it was too rigid. Then they'd try a soft foam, but that was way too floppy and unconvincing. We don't think about it much, but it was really a challenge to build a suit that could walk and was convincing as something rather marshmallow-ish. The solution ended up being an inner shell of a denser, but not too dense, foam, and an outer layer of soft foam glued on. But if you glued that soft foam on the outside with any wrinkles, then you're screwed and you gotta start all over again. But they did it, and there definitely are seams, but they're hidden underneath the bib, hidden in between the marshmallow segments of the arms, stuff like that. The one benefit was that the outer foam was already the right color for Marshmallow, so they didn't need to worry about painting it afterwards. Billy Bryan really took the lead on the body, while Linda Frobos shaped the head. There were wires coming out of the suit, and people could control the movements of the eyes and the eyebrows. I mean, eyebrow muscles, if that makes sense. And this footage took a lot of work. Boss had the footage from Columbus Circle, so they were able to compare what they were filming and make sure the Marshmallow Man wasn't passing through a building or anything. It was just a lot of trial and error to get the walks and eye movement right. It didn't help that Billy Bryan inside the suit could see very little through the mouth. And even worse, he almost couldn't take direction. The layers of foam meant he couldn't hear, and the earpiece they gave him almost never worked. And of course it was hot, hot in that suit, but about to get hotter. Really quickly, before we leave Linda Frobos and Billy Bryan, Linda would sculpt a lot of the creatures in Beetlejuice, in Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. She'd do things in Wolf, that Jack Nicholson, Michelle Pfeiffer werewolf movie. She'd work on Starship Troopers. Oddly enough, I don't think for Boss Films there. 
She did costumes for The Things on the Cat in the Hat live-action movie. Her IMDb page is frankly pretty spotty, so I'm not sure all what she's done or if she's still in the business. Billy Bryan would do more iconic work, like being one of many people to puppeteer Chucky in Child's Play. He also built and operated puppets for Men in Black, Species, and Jurassic Park 3. If you've seen Army of Darkness and remember Ash fighting in that pit with water at the start of the movie, first he fights a more human deadite, then a more monstrous one comes out of the wall. That's Billy Bryan again in that monster suit. Let's get back to the movie. In the 1999 commentary, Harold Ramis brings up a neat point that when the fire hydrant goes off, it's not really spraying water, but sand. Apparently water doesn't scale convincingly. Ray went to Camp Wakanda? Like, in Black Panther's country? Huh, cool. Ray losing it, and then Egon with his mouth agape and simply stating he's beyond the capacity for rational thought. Again, a joke. Egon says he's terrified, but he's still saying it in a matter-of-fact way. It's funny. When you see a shot down at ground level, the people running are a bit unconvincing up against that big marshmallow foot. In fact, you can actually see the dark windows through the marshmallow foot. At the same moment, you can also see the matte painting shift against the film. Watch the Shandor building. There's a jitter there. And I don't blame Boss Films for any of this, by the way. They had no time to fix anything, so it's impressive their effects generally look as good as they do on the screen. But a final moment of unconvincing effects. I really dislike the shot of the Marshmallow Man trying to step on Holy Trinity Lutheran Church. It looks like he's just kicking into it. Well, it really looks like the two objects don't exist together, which is the reality of the situation. Oh well. Walter Peck is out front, which is neat. The Ghostbusters fire on the Marshmallow Man. Who is missing his red tie? Oh well. Billy Bryan realized this too late and pointed it out to Michael Gross. Gross said, Okay, who should pay the thousands of dollars for a reshoot? Heh. Gross's real point was that it was probably fine. He hadn't noticed it in the footage, and almost nobody notices the tie missing when they fire on Mr. Stay Puffed. Cut to a wide shot, and I've always felt that the beams shooting down look way too straight. We've seen the proton streams curve around, so it's a little odd to see them like straight beams for this one shot. Oh well, again, some effects just needed to get done. The Marshmallow Man is on fire. This is interesting. I've always felt that if given enough time, it looks like the guys could burn down Mr. Stay Puffed. For that matter, I mean, I don't want fighter jets to shoot at this thing and cause civilian casualties, but I figure some conventional firepower could destroy this thing, right? It's not like Godzilla that's almost indestructible and breathes radiation. The Marshmallow Man is flammable. This brings me to one funny thought that I have about the Marshmallow Man and Gozer in general. This is just my headcanon. I think Gozer coming to Earth didn't really anticipate the destructive power humans possess. If Gozer had shown up back during ancient times, the Sumerian Empire like they've been talking about, then yeah, any humans underneath would be squashed. But it seems like Gozer didn't realize humanity has flamethrowers, fighter jets, hell, nuclear power now. <laughs> I suppose nuclear power from the proton packs will ultimately be Gozer's downfall. Guess I'm just saying that a giant monster, while impressive, isn't about to topple civilizations that can now build skyscrapers taller than said monster. It seems like Gozer misjudged the situation, coming to Earth in the 80s. Back to the marshmallow suit really quick. 
Billy Bryant was not about to be set on fire. They hired a stuntman to do this part, and there was a big fight right off the bat. See, the fumes from the burning foam would be toxic, so the person inside the suit would certainly asphyxiate while on fire. So, a solution. For this stunt to work, the person inside needed an oxygen tank and a mask. But think about it. Strap a tank of oxygen onto a person while their outside suit is on fire. That sounds really dangerous. I'd be afraid of that stunt too. But still, you need to breathe. So there was a big fight over wearing an oxygen tank or not, and the person finally accepted that yes, he needed a tank. Oof, and this sounds bad too. There were a couple of false starts on roasting the Marshmallow Man. He'd be lit on fire, action, and then fall down before climbing up the model building. On the third try, the last suit they had, they finally got it right. The Ghostbusters regroup. Notice their red lights aren't cycling on their packs. They're wearing the stunt packs here, the less detailed packs for falls and everything, so the four lights are just lit up red. And here's Chekhov's crossing the streams. Heh, <laughs> yeah. It wasn't until filming that they figured out this is how they'd end it, which explains why that awkward, albeit funny, digression was in the ballroom scene about not crossing the streams. I wonder why crossing the streams would close the doors. Reversing the particle flow? So, energy from Gozer's dimension is still powering Mr. Stay Puffed? Maybe? I don't know. Sounds like a Doctor Who solution to me. Reverse the polarity of the neutron flow. I wonder if these guys had seen some Doctor Who and decided to lift from there. And here's a cute moment. See you on the other side, Ray. Nice working with you, Dr. Venkman. See, if this was an anime or maybe a superhero story with the X-Men, each character would stop to have a moment with every other character, with everybody, and say something meaningful to each person. But here, it's just a quick bit between Peter and Ray. They shared their first scene at the university together. Peter pitched the business idea on campus. They've set up just a little something more between Peter and Ray. The guys shaking their wands and then their bodies, without any real force feedback, is just a step above how they stumbled around for a non-existent earthquake. Check out the terror dogs up to the explosion. They don't care that their pyramid is being blasted. Or maybe they're mildly interested. One looks at the beams, maybe going, huh, what? And Mr. Stay Puffed is cooked. Before the explosion, also check him out for a facial change. It looks stop motion to me, but I wonder if it was done in the suit. I don't know. Kaboom! There goes the model of the shrine. The threat's gone. We need to dump on Walter Peck. This is back to Animal House sort of content, making a mess of the mean guy. William Atherton tells a funny story. They were going to dump all the shaving cream on him, and he looks at it and thinks it might be too much. It might crush him. And all the people are brushing off his concerns, not taking him seriously. It's just shaving cream. Meanwhile, he understands, you know, the physics of the situation, and you can still be crushed by water, or shaving cream. So he goes, okay, try it out on someone else. So they try it on someone willing, and it just flattens them. Having made his point, they didn't load up so much shaving cream for Atherton. He says he still nearly did fall down from the impact, though. Back upstairs, I want to explain the temple space briefly now. So there was always the side the Ghostbusters were on, then a central dome. Beyond the dome, it used to be Gozer's realm, but now we're looking straight through to the other side of Manhattan. I like all the repeated calls if everyone's okay. You okay? You okay? Fine? 
How are you? You okay? I think Bill Murray must have had enough goop after being hit by Slimer, so he just gets a dab here. He'd whine about this again for Ghostbusters 2, so he notably does not get slimed in that movie. Originally, Dana and Lewis were just going to be here in the temple rubble, but Ivan Reitman thought it would be funny if they'd emerge from the charred remains of the terror dogs. Cue Dana's theme. Peter says, go check on that little guy, which brings up an interesting point. We, the audience, know who Lewis is, but the guys have only met him as Vince Clortho, and I think Peter only heard him referred to as the Keymaster. Peter probably doesn't know Lewis's name here. Lewis is back to normal. Who does your taxes? And yep, the Ghostbusters being cool heroes is over. The Ghostbusters are back to the bump, bump, bump theme on the piano, and Ray says they're the Ghostbusters while they're all covered in marshmallow. I've spoken before about the Tunguska blasts and getting years wrong. I still say Dan Aykroyd likes to twist facts and figures for some reason. It's just on his mind. We'd like a sample of your brain tissue. Okay. Is that a little reference back to Egon's introduction and him wanting to drill into his own head? Maybe. Triumph. We're all feeling good. Winston gets the last line in before the credits. I love this town. It's almost out of nowhere except, hey, we've gone through a whole adventure that largely celebrated New York and we're all feeling good. Ray Parker Jr.'s theme. Man, Ivan really loved the song because he features it three times and is it ever fun. We're back in front of that New York crowd. They had to figure out what Dana would be wearing after the adventure and this is it. Is it a jacket? Is it a housecoat? I'll never know, but if you time travel to the Zool sleeping scene, you'll find it on the floor by the bed. Think about this. This is like Sigourney Weaver's second scene film. Third, I guess, if you count the shot of her just walking to her apartment building. This whole adventure hasn't really happened for Sigourney Weaver yet, even less so than the guys, and here it's just a celebration, almost of what Ghostbusters is going to be. And the Ghostbusters are barely marshmallowed up now. Egon was saying he felt like the floor of a taxi cab, and now he's just dusted with it on his hair and clothes. So what, did they get cleaned up inside the building, I guess? Whatever, the music's playing, the movie's wrapping up, and we don't really care that it would have been tough to get most of that marshmallow off. Janine runs to Egon. That's sweet. I don't think she'll get to ride in the car. Ecto-1 will have Ray driving, Dana in the middle, Peter in the passenger seat, and Egon and Winston in the two bucket seats facing each other in the back. There's no room for Janine back to the firehouse. Huh, come to think of it. I mean, big whoop, this doesn't really matter. But the real Ghostbusters episode that follows up on the movie, Citizen Ghost, has the guys returning to the firehouse without Dana, and then Janine's already there. Eh, maybe they dropped Dana off at a friend's place first or something, and Janine beat them to the firehouse. That works. There's also no room in Ecto for poor Lewis, who I guess gets the actual last lines of the movie, I want to go with them in the car. Watch Ray getting into the car, holding that yellow hose. Always with the damned hoses. They should get rid of those for the sequel. And if they can just get the car turned around, they are out of here. Slimer charges at us, 
with the same shot as when he charged at Peter earlier, cementing he's going to be an important part of Ghostbusters beyond this movie. Whew! Thanks for coming with me on this journey, everybody. I hope you learned a few new things. I'm sure I missed dozens, hundreds of things other people have noticed, but hey, this is me giving you what I've noticed. I talked about what I believe is the heart of this movie during the City Hall scene. We're a group that's discovered a secret to the universe. Now believe us and let us do our job. That's honestly an extreme version of their kind of comedy, their viewpoint on the whole. Ivan Reitman and pals want to make fun of all these stuck-up institutions they see. I think the other most important thing to say is how special this movie is, how much it's lightning in a bottle. They had to hit the ground running on making it, and they pulled it off. Things could have gone wrong so many times. But Ivan, Dan, Harold, and Bill, not to mention everyone else involved, they think they're making another Blues Brothers or another Stripes, only with a bigger budget than Stripes. And in a way, they were. They've got these National Lampoon friends involved. You've got some of that humor and that attitude. But I don't think they realized they were making something that people, including kids, would latch on to this hard. The Ghostbusters have a unique look with fun equipment. They have a distinctive car. Heck, they have a unique base of operations, just like all the other heroes of the 1980s would have. Thundercats and Ninja Turtles and the Transformers. They even have their own theme song. All of these things were in place for a reason, to make a joke on this fictional business existing, but they've accidentally created something that, weird to say, is going to be bigger than this one film that was supposed to contain it. Let's check the big board. Hey, I remember this bit. You and I both know Ghostbusters is Ivan Reitman's best film to date, probably his best movie ever, though exploring that is partly what this podcast is all about. We'll keep an open mind going forward, but for now, Ghostbusters is numero uno, followed by Stripes, Meatballs, Orientation, and finally, Cannibal Girls. Hey, Cannibal Girls came out in 1973, and Ghostbusters came out in 84. Ivan Reitman has come a long way in 11 years. Man, I am done studying Ghostbusters now. Trust me, I love it, and I'll certainly be working back to talking about other aspects of it someday, but for now I am through talking about my favorite movie. A special thank you, once again, to the real Janine Melnitz, Laura Summer. Follow her on Twitter, at LoveThatLaura. I'm Ross May, and you can contact me on Twitter, at RossMayWriter. If I got something wrong, or overlooked your favorite element, feel free to politely contact me there, or through my email on my website, rossmayrider.com guys we'd better split up we can do more damage that way I want to go with them in the car something strange in your neighborhood who you gonna call Come on.
Can't be. 